0: Took a nap today, and what's funny about it, I had this just an hour long dream, and I don't take naps, I'm not a napper, but I had, you know, just an hour long dream, involved somebody I know, getting really mad, somebody I don't know that well, but it involved them getting really mad about something, and then that person ended up on stage, like a singer of a band. Or some sort of performance like that. Like they were the front man or the lead performer. And then that person, like I don't know if it was part of the performance. I mean, you never really get an explanation for any of this stuff in your dreams. But at some point, like they collapsed on stage. But it was almost an act. But something weird was going on. You know, you never really know what's going on in, the, in your dreams. But it got me thinking when I woke up about, you know, I was talking a week or two ago about that AI program. Where you can type in anything basically, and it'll try to generate it. And some things, you know, it generates really well. But you have to be very specific. Like, if you type in the name of a public figure who has a lot of public photos available through Google or whatever this thing uses as source material, you know, if it's somebody who has a lot of different images of them, it's a very specific action, or, or you want them to be holding a very specific object, it'll do a pretty good job with that. You know, like Trumpsfeld. Like, you could type in Trumpsfeld doing anything, and it'll give you a pretty good representation of whatever it is you're looking for because there's who knows how many photos. Who knows how many photos exist of him? Enough to where it can really render him. But it made me think about dreams because I was like, you know, dreaming is kind of like that. And I hate to make this comparison. As I've talked about at length on here, I'm not big on the whole, oh, dude, we're living in a simulation. Oh, dude, you ever think AI could do this? Oh, dude, imagine if AI could, you know, I don't really like to talk about that stuff. But sometimes you do have to acknowledge it and the parallels of what we're trying to create. And we're creating a pale imitation of that, but that's kind of what this uh, this AI app, this image app, it's kind of a pale imitation of what your brain does in dreams, which it takes random points of reference and it combines them. It's what I've said about not very imaginative creativity, where there's a lot of creativity and some of it's good, but it doesn't change what it is, which is... It's creating these Frankenstein's out of everything. It's like, oh, I'll take a little piece of this and a piece of this and combine them. And as I've said before, that's a—it's a creative mule. Like a mule, you can breed a horse and a donkey, and it creates a mule. But the mule can't breed any further; they're sterile. That's kind of what this—this this form of unimaginative creativity is like. We're just like, oh, I'm going to take pieces of this and pieces of this and make a hybrid thing, and claim that it's its own thing, or it's a new thing. When most of the time, it's a novelty. And it might serve a purpose. Like, if you're a fan of the two things they combined, you're going to be like, Whoa, somebody thought to combine those things. But more often than not, it's just, you're like, whatever. If you're particularly giddy, and eager to, you know, get into something new, maybe you'll be tricked by the novelty. Like... The example i always use is being a teenager and getting into death metal and then there were these bands that were doing free jazz death metal and i don't even know what the fuck i was hearing but for a split second when i'm 16 years old i'm like whoa that's cool whoa who would have thought to do that but once you get past that it usually doesn't have much staying power So, unimaginative creativity, you just create these mules that can't breed any further. They're the end of their own genetic line. And of course, you you could come up with a million examples of bands and creators who would tell you they just kind of picked two things and were like, I could combine those. But some sort of magic happened. Like, sure, that happens a ton. Like, there's plenty of really iconoclastic bands, for example, who have been like, oh, we're into this and this. We're going to be influenced by them both. But that doesn't explain the product. The product in that case, if it's truly iconoclastic, there's some other sort of magic happening beyond the influences. And so right now, this AI app, it's basically, it's amazing. It's amazing that it exists, and I've had a lot of fun with it, but it creates mules where it's like, oh, Tony Soprano dressed like a clown. You know, you can just type things like that in. Oh, uh, this celebrity meeting this celebrity wearing these outfits. But it's just sort of combining things right now. It's not like... Like, there is some crazy shit that happens with it. Uh, especially because it's very stylized and it's going for an artistic effect. So there is some like kind of crazy stuff that can happen with it. But it's not like dreams. Like, the difference with dreams is... You can often piece together why certain people or situations are in your dreams. You can kind of be like, okay, I obviously, oh, I talked to that person last week. They're they're still kind of floating around my subconscious. They showed up in my dream. Oh, that situation's like something I was thinking about. But it's not always that obvious. And what always blows my mind about dreams is just how creative they are. They're not just combining different situations and different things that you're already familiar with. Things will happen, I mean, just for example, like that person I know who was in my dream and was really mad about something and then them suddenly being on stage and then collapsing, but it was almost like it was um, choreographed. Like you've seen performers do that where they're dancing on stage, they're moving around on stage, and then in time with the music, like let's say the music stops or has a break, they'll like fall to the ground. It was kind of like that. And while I'm familiar with performers doing that, it's not something I think about. And so, you know, on one hand, it's this combination of events, but there's always something going on in dreams that's beyond your points of reference. And I think that's what makes it more than... That's what makes your brain, that's what makes whatever it is that makes you dream more than just an AI app pairing things together. It's not just creating Frankensteins. Sometimes it's creating whole new things and the and what I've, I've told the story on here before whenever I talk about dreams, because I don't think about dreams, I'm not into dream analysis. As an experiment some years back I did keep a dream journal where I would wake up and write down what happened and I did find that process really interesting in the sense that oh yeah a lot goes on in my dreams that I only remember for a split second and putting them down on paper changes that experience and it is interesting in some ways like I I remember being surprised that certain people I know were recurring characters in my dreams more than I ever realized I was like oh shit you know I never I never think about it after the fact but that person I know shows up in a lot of my dreams and I wouldn't have been aware of that unless I wrote it down but that just if like when I started doing that I did it for a while but it started to feel like another obligation and also, I, I'm not someone who likes to to read into dreams or analyze them. You know, I I understand why, you know, the the classic psychologists, whatever Carl Jung. I understand why Freud and these people were preoccupied with dreams. I understand why there's a spiritual take on that. But I almost I, I almost feel like I shouldn't interfere with it. It's like lucid dreaming as well. I've lucid dreamt a few times. Lucid dreamt. I've lucid dreamt a few times. Uh, But yeah, I've lucid dreamt a number of times. Not that many, though. And when I've realized in the dream that I have control, it's an amazing feeling to go, oh, I have control in this dream. I'm not just simply like a... Because how dreams normally feel... How dreams normally feel to me is like, I feel like a vague participant. I don't feel like an observer. I feel like I'm there. I feel like I'm interacting. But I feel like a vague participant. I'm never really sure what my role is. I'm never sure what I'm doing with the people or what I'm doing in the situation I'm in in the dream. So I feel like a more vague participant who isn't able to, to it's, and, and you know, that's, that's an interesting thing about my normal dreams that I have is I do feel like I'm reacting constantly to what's going on. A feeling of confusion. uh, Sometimes fright. Not normally anything too negative. They're not normally nightmares. But I do feel like what I'm experiencing in my dream, I'm reacting to it as if it's happening. But beyond the reaction, I don't feel like I'm really in control of anything. And so those few times where I've been in a dream and I've been like, oh... I have control now. I can do what I want. It's been pretty incredible, and it has been fun. But I've always woken up more exhausted, like almost like I haven't been sleeping. And I don't know if there's anything to that. Like if you're lucid dreaming, you're not truly sleeping because you're still making decisions. And there's an activity level to that, a mental activity level that's not there when you're just in a deep sleep, being a vague participant. Uh... But uh, I've never tried to lucid dream. I'm I'm kind of of this opinion, and it's not a hardline opinion, but I've kind of developed this idea that, like, maybe I shouldn't mess with my dreams too much. Maybe I shouldn't think too much about them. Maybe I shouldn't interfere in that. Maybe they should just be exactly what they are. And what I was going to say, though, is, like, what told me, though, there's something real and serious, real, Something real and serious in dreams is years back, having this dream where I learned that these two people who live here in Olympia were brother and sister. I've mentioned this on here before, but I learned they were brother and sister, and there was nothing that would have told me that. I didn't know them. One of them was a friend of my friend who lived here many, many years ago. So he was kind of an acquaintance of mine that, yeah, I met many years ago. And I would see him around town and say, hey, and things like that. Uh, But then the other one was this woman who had kids and was a friend of my boss. And I I don't think I ever even spoke to her, ever. I don't think I ever had any interaction. I just kind of saw her around, and I was aware of her. She was like a pretty, I don't know, like a 40-year-old woman who seemed kind of like young and kind of hip. So I just noticed her, and I was like, oh, yeah, she's she's a mom of, like, three kids or something. Never thought about it. And then I had this dream that, you know, where, you know, it was basically told to me that those two people were brother and sister. Like, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of them here in the same timeline. Like, this isn't a group of, it's not like I went to social events where both of these people were there and, and then somebody was like, Oh, do you know that, like, uh, Kelly and Paul are brother and sister? And I was like, Whoa! You know, it wasn't even something like that. Because I've been in situations like that before, where, like, there's a group of people, you're at, you're at a get-together or something, and you find out two people are, are relatives or something, and that's, just, that's pretty normal. This wasn't like that at all. I, these people had never been in the same room together in my presence. Nobody had ever mentioned them in tandem. Like, I think at the very most, maybe uh, when I was hanging out with the guy, like one time he mentioned having a sister and like a a niece or a nephew, but that could be a million people. There was no identifying information, but in this dream, somehow it was revealed to me like, oh, those people are brother and sister. And then I woke up with this weird feeling and I was like, I got to find out if that's true. I gotta find out if that's true. For some reason, I didn't just shake it off as some sort of dream fact. Oh, well, that was a dream fact. It's not true, but it's a it's a dream fact. I don't normally need to to fact check dream che- dream facts. And uh, but I did, and I like I looked into it. I'm not sure how I looked into it. Somehow though, discovered they are in fact brother and sister, and that made me go, okay, wow. There is something going on in dreams where... Yeah, I was... You know, those people were... Those are human beings I was peripherally aware of. But they're not people I think about. And one of them I I don't even think I met. I just saw her around. So it just told me, like, there's nothing important about that data. Like, as far as I know, to date, those two people, that brother and sister you know, don't, ha- don't play any role in my life. I wasn't destined to, 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 to live amongst them. But I think it was just a, basically a way of, of letting me know, or just me learning, that there's this computation going on. And, and what that's based on, who knows? You know, somebody would be quick to say, oh, somehow you knew, that skeptic, that cynic... That sort of atheist mindset would say somehow you heard that somehow you knew that i know that i didn't there's no way i could have but somebody would say somehow like you did know who both of those people were in some capacity maybe somebody said and you forgot i don't think so no i'm going to say a hard no on that but i understand why people would think that like you don't think about like this this weird like psychic computation happening especially in your sleep but it does happen and i think that we do that in waking life as well like it feels different cuz it was a dream you know it feels different because you're like oh that was i experienced that in a dream something that happened in a dream turned out to be true that i couldn't have known otherwise but it's something you do in waking life too It plays into things like intuition, ESP, psychic sense. You know, it doesn't even have to be that grandiose. It's just sometimes when you're going about your life, if you're kind of operating, you know, clearly, little things come to you, and sometimes they turn out to be accurate. Like, I don't think it's that much different from synchronicity or something like that, where it's not even about the specific... Uh synchronicity itself it's not about the information i mean if it if if that does seem poignant sure go with that but in general like when you experience synchronicity you're getting a you're getting taught you know that indra's net is real and everything is reflected in everything else there's you know this intricate net that seemingly has no end and where the where the the ropes or the, the twine in that net connects there are jewels that reflect each other and that's sort of how uh, and, and and we're in a constant uh, we're in a constant state of experiencing those things and whatever you want to call them be them you know coincidence You can really call them whatever you want. It could be a coincidence, a synchronicity, a message from God. Like you could really use any phrase you want, but we all have those experiences. You could chalk it up to a matter of mathematical probability. Whatever it is, that's still happening. That's what I always try to say about it. And when I was experiencing more synchronicity and more interested in it, not to say I'm not now, but when I was kind of looking for that spiritual high of experiencing those chasing synchronicity, I did think about, you know, everybody says not to get attached to the specific synchronicity itself. And we almost collect them. Like if you experience them and you're aware of it, and it excites you when it happens, you almost become a hunter or a collector of synchronicity. And you think of it in this plural, you know, you you kind of pluralize it into synchronicities. Like, each specific instance of it is an independent and separate item. It's entertainment. Like, it's like saying, I went to uh, this show, or I watched this specific show as if it's just this one little performance that's happening. And I used to think about it that way, where it's like, oh, like I almost counted them. Like, oh, when I went there, I experienced this synchronicity. And, oh, I I really love synchronicities, you know, it was like this plural idea. When what I started to realize, when I started to think about what was happening, opposed to what it was, is I realized, oh, no, these are all one whole event, and I'm just getting glimpses at it. And, and not even an event. But what this is, is this is just the, the ultimate interconnectivity of everything. And sometimes you need reminders of that. Because we feel very independent. You know, we feel very separate from everything. We don't feel like we're part of this larger organism working together. We kind of feel like we, we live in these isolated bodies isolated minds, and even though we interact with things and we live on a planet and do things in the world, we still feel this level of autonomy and independence that tricks us into forgetting how interconnected things are. And so I see those experiences, just what's happening to you, whether you want to chalk it up to, you know, probability or some sort of spiritual message, you go either way with it simply experiencing that is a reminder of the interconnectivity. And once I realized that I I experienced them less, I find that they don't happen quite as often as they did before. Once I kind of accepted that, oh, this is just, this just shows. This just shows Indra, this just reveals Indra's net. You get a glimpse of a jewel that's reflected in other jewels. And every jewel reflects every other jewel. Coincidence, synchronicity is just an example of that. But I, I, I feel the same way about like the dream fact. Like finding out a dream fact or having a dream that feels especially poignant or like there's something there. Because not every dream is that way, but sometimes you have a dream where you're like, something was going on there. So there's something there. And, uh... Where am I going? Uh... You know like so a dream fact is kind of that way oh i learned this thing in a dream my my brain did some sort of like psychic uh computation in my brain and i learned that these random people are brother and sister what's the importance of that am i supposed to marry her am i supposed to marry this single mom that i don't know and that guy's supposed to become my brother-in-law what, what, what's going on here you know, people look for that sort of meaning. And that's why people caution you not to read into those things. Reading into those things is this form of you know spiritual materialism, and it's also a source of delusion. Because somebody who suffers from, let's say, schizophrenia, they're experiencing that continuously. Like, if you've ever known somebody who's been diagnosed with schizophrenia, they're experiencing synchronicity and dream facts all the time. And they're very aware of it. And I don't even even know that those things aren't happening. You know, we have a tendency to assume it's all hallucinatory, and of course some of it is. But I almost think that their condition makes them just ultra-sensitive to how connected things are always. And that can lead to delusion, and it's it's often delusional when somebody, you know, is schizophrenic or something similar... But I almost think they're just more exposed like it's like a raw nerve for them And that raw nerve is like things are continually brushing up against that raw nerve, which is why they won't shut up about it But it's not just people who have some sort of mental illness. It's people who Are just relatively normal, but they experience those things and they they want to attach themselves to it They want to treat treat each synchronicity or dream fact like it's essential and they grab hold of it and they're like can you believe that and they're excited and when you experience those things especially if they're new to you they are exciting you're like whoa something's going on here and it's not what life normally prescribes to me but that's why there's discipline around this stuff because that stuff happens during meditation as well which shouldn't be a surprise if these things happen in waking life and when you're asleep, of course they'd happen when you're meditating, which is almost like a in-between state in some ways. And they do, you know, when, when I got into meditation, this started to happen. Once I actually committed to it and started to get results from meditation, I would get, you know, I, I've heard Buddhists refer to it as going to the movies and the light show where you start to get glimpses of things, like visuals, ideas. I've had words just come into my head, and they and they don't feel like a thought. They don't come to me the way a thought comes to me. It almost feels like something else just threw those words in. Just something else just put those those thoughts in my head. And sometimes they are pretty profound, as they were, when I was kind of keeping track of that and, and seeking that. But... One of the reasons why Buddhism cautions you not to become attached to that, not to put too much emphasis on that stuff, is because then you become this spiritual materialist hunting for the next high, hunting for the next little bit of excitement or entertainment, because that stuff becomes entertaining to you. And I think if you're going to contemplate it at all, it's the, the bigger process of what's going on. You know, And you're not going to understand it, because part of meditation, at least Zen meditation, is not to try to understand. It's why Zen koans are designed to break your brain. They're riddles, where you're not going to find an answer to the riddle, you're going to accept that you can't find the answer, and and you sort of break your brain, or you, you halt your brain from doing what it tries to do obsessively all the time which is make sense of things and, and find a reason. And so, you know, I think you can take that same attitude to all these different things that you experience, whether it's in waking life, meditation, dream states. Phenomena occurs, and it's exciting, and it's cool. And I think you can be excited about it. Because I think there's this, this overly stoic sort of aesthetic point of view on this stuff that turned me off a little bit initially where it's like don't be excited at all about those things don't get get attached at all to those things don't think at all about those things now I understand what they're teaching when they say that you know because I thought it was well this isn't fun like you should be allowed to have fun and that's what I've said before about synchronicity where there's it's that same sort of skeptic it's that cynic it's the that atheist sort of mind that science that that scientist not scientist in the professional sense but an adherent of scientism that mind goes don't have too much fun with that cuz that's been my experience when you're with the wrong person and you experience those things when you're like whoa isn't it crazy this thing came up 3 times today this random obscure reference came up three times today. Like, I woke up thinking about it. Then you called me and mentioned it. Then we went out to a restaurant and, like, somebody brought it up at the restaurant. Oh, and then we were watching TV and it was referenced on TV. Isn't that kind of wild? There's a certain certain sort of person who will go, yeah, that's cool, whoa. Yeah, it's kind of scary how those things happen, how these coincidences or these synchronicities happen. But there's another sort of person, and there's a lot of them out there, where they're like, don't have any fun with that. Don't think about that. And what's interesting is those are not the people coming from a spiritual discipline who are saying that. They're people who are not just non-spiritual, but anti-spiritual. And so it's funny to me that some of the most disciplined adherents of a religion or spiritual practice like Buddhism will tell you, don't have too much fun with that. Don't have too much fun. Don't think about that too much. Don't be too attached to that. Meanwhile, like somebody who kind of has, in some ways, the polar opposite beliefs, someone who's like, there is no spiritual state. There's simply this reality that I know, and we totally understand it, thanks to science and math and STEM. Oh yeah, and don't get too excited about synchronicity. Don't get too excited about what happens in a dream. It's just interesting that both the religious side and the secular, atheistic side will discourage you from getting excited about that. And so that kind of put me off, where I was like, oh, you just can't be excited about these things? You can't think it's significant? But those things, they're kind of like road signs. Those, When you experience th- these things that seem otherworldly and unpredictable and surprise you and excite you, they're kind of like road signs saying like... Just think about the fact that this is happening, and leave it at that. And the reason there is caution around it, not from the atheist types, like, the difference is, I think, with atheist types, I think, I often get the feeling they're coming from a place where they're like, this is, uh, they're, just, they're so anti-spiritual and anti-religious, that anything that, that goes beyond our concrete, material reality is a threat to their worldview and I've actually seen people like that I've had friends who think that way and I've experienced pretty impressive synchronicity with them and I always get the feeling they're scared they'd probably deny it but I always get the feeling they're a little scared and I've always been careful not to lay it on too thick when that happens Something as simple as, uh, the way I have approached that is just as simple as, whoa, that came up again. Isn't that, wasn't that cool, you know? But even, even just saying, whoa, that came up again, a certain type of person is inclined to shut you down. And whenever that's happened to me, I sense fear in them, because it's the unknown. Something unknown is happening, something unpredictable is happening, something I don't have control over is happening. So, I think that's a part of it. Um, but uh, where else am I going to go with this? Uh, well, th- what I'm getting at here, too, is just the importance of confidence. Pe- not even necessarily people who agree with you or see things your way, but I, I realized, you know. As I was going down this road, I realized at some point that, oh, most people don't want to hear about this stuff. Not just the people who shut you down, they're kind of fearful. You don't want to hold people hostage to this stuff. Because I know from personal experience, I can get really impatient when someone tries to tell me about a dream they had. Because that dream seemed so real and vivid and important to the person having it. But unless there's something really noteworthy about it. As a listener, it's like, okay, yeah, you had a dream. There couldn't be anything less relevant to me than your dream. And I I joke about it, but I do feel like there's some truth to it, where I feel like you have to give consent to somebody to listen to your dreams. Everyone talks about consent in this physical way, but there's not enough psychic consent. <laughs> Or it's like people will come into work or, you know, a friend will be like, Oh, you wouldn't believe my dream. You wouldn't believe what was in my dream last night. It was, eh. And it couldn't be less relevant, you know, and it's, it's not interesting to you. It's like somebody telling you the plot of a movie they saw that you have no interest in. And so you, you, you need to have confidants, people who you know you can talk to about those things, and they get it, or they're interested, or they're engaged. And I learned that with like, something like synchronicity where, oh yeah, you don't need to tell people about that. Meditation, you don't need to tell people about it. When I first started to have breakthrough meditation sessions, breakthrough meditation sessions, when I first, you know, started to feel like I was having breakthroughs with meditation, I met up with a friend of mine who's not interested in any of that stuff. He's a guy that I used to work with, and when he passes through town, we hang out a little bit. And he, uh... He, I don't think he's ever thought about meditation. He's a funny guy, he's worked in comedy and very funny guy, very, very imaginative guy. But it was just something he would never thought of and I was trying to tell him what the deep state of meditation was like. And I was telling him about when you get those visuals. Because I was just starting to experience those and I was like, this is wild because I'm not asleep, but it's as if my brain is starting to dream while I'm awake. That's kind of how I would describe it. Your brain is kind of generating these images and just glimpses. It's not like full dream immersion. It's like you're just getting glimpses of things you've never seen before. Situations, people, just different things. And they're coming to you vividly for, for a split second and then disappearing. That's what I've experienced with deep meditation. And I was trying to explain that to this guy and he was just like, Just sounds like you probably fell asleep. You know, kind of the same person, the same sort of mindset, they would say, you know, if I, if I told him, oh, I had a dream where I found out these two random people were brother and sister, and I never knew that, but my dream told me that, and it turned out to be true, I think it's the same sort of thinking that goes, oh, well, you probably just heard that somewhere. You probably heard that somewhere, forgot that you learned it. And then it came to you in a dream and it felt like it was some sort of revelation. I totally understand that response because we do do that. It's not that we don't do that. Of course we do that. But uh, my friend's response was rational. I mean, it it was a very rational response where it's like, Oh, you must just be falling asleep and not realizing it when that happens. But I realized in that moment, Oh yeah, I'm not meant to tell him about this. You know, because in a way, it was like I was almost sort of gloating or bragging, like, oh, hey, did you know I'm into meditation? You ever, heard of, you ever heard of this thing called meditation that I discovered? Oh, yeah, your brain does all these crazy things if you let it. You start seeing things you've never seen before. You know, I, I totally understand how that comes across. And even if it doesn't come across poorly, and even if someone's interested, it's just without their consent just launching into something that is personal. It's like having a dream is a personal thing that only you ultimately care about. I think the only time that someone really cares about another person's dream is if they're in it. Like if someone says, oh, I had a dream last night and you were in it. You go, oh yeah, well tell me about it. Like we're so narcissistic that we only want to hear about other people's dreams if some weird dream version of ourselves was in that dream But no, you know, I've had that experience many times where I just realized, oh, certain people you don't talk to about these things, certain people don't care, and you kind of hold them hostage to something that's very personal that they can't even experience. You know, even if they were to do the same thing and experience their own version of that, it's not their dream. It's not their meditation. But yet there are people who are interested in that. You'll find people, there are friends, who do want to hear about those things. I have friends where I'm interested in their dreams, but I feel like consent has been established where they're not going to tell me about some shitty fucking mundane dream that I don't want to hear about. They're going to tell me something interesting. We've established a rapport there. There's consent. Um... But you need confidants like that. You know, you need certain people that you can go, okay, hey, yeah. We we talk about these weird things, and I found with those people, I don't even really talk to those people that much about these things anymore, because I think some of these things you need to get out, get it out of your system. And it's very similar in some ways to like somebody who's going through a personal crisis that you can't possibly care about. Like you might care about them, but it's like when someone goes through a breakup. And if you care about that person, you'll be like, oh yeah, you know, that really sucks and I feel bad. And I'll try to help you. I'll be a listening ear. And, you know, part of like breaking up, for example, is you kind of have to talk it out of your system. You know, you kind of have to be like, okay, I need to... Like the first thing you're doing when you break up with somebody is like trying to find this sort of rationale or logic behind it. When the reality is most breakups are kind of a Zen koan where you can't really find the one, at least in my experience, where there's not really one motivation behind it or one thing that happened. Like, I've never been in a situation, most of the people I know haven't either, where there's one, like, catastrophic event, like somebody cheating or somebody doing something that provokes it. It's normally just, like, somebody finally made a decision they've been thinking about for a while. But when someone does that to you, or even if, like... I've been in the position of breaking up with somebody else and even though I made the decision, I don't even really know why I made the decision and it's as much a riddle to me. In fact, I think it can be even more of a riddle when you're the one that makes the decision because you kind of go, why did I do that again? But it's it's like a Zen koan where I think what you ultimately realize through a breakup is, oh, I'm not going to solve this riddle. Unless there was some smoking gun Unless there was like some event or behavior that you can just pinpoint and say that's what caused it. Most of the time you're just kind of trying to solve this riddle that you can't solve. And when you move on from a breakup, it's when you accept that. It's when your brain breaks and you go, oh, I'm not going to find the logic behind this. But for that first week especially, you're you're just thinking about it all the time. And then because you're thinking about it so much, you're talking about it a lot. And if you have good friends, they'll listen to you. But after that week's over, they're going to care about how you're doing, but they don't care about every little thing. Oh, she she did this. What does this mean? Because you do that. Oh, she liked one of my posts. My ex-girlfriend liked one of my posts. What does that mean? She want to get back together? She want to get back... You know, you start thinking that way, and you end up holding your friends hostage. And I've had friends do that to me, and i know i've done that to friends i remember like the you know the first like real big breakup i went through in life one of the few to this day but the first big one i had a good friend and we would drink beers and he listened to me but i remember realizing at a certain point i was like oh yeah he doesn't care anymore not that he doesn't care about me but i might as well be talking about my dream I'm talking about something that only I'm personally experiencing, and it's different from death or something like that, because even though this does happen with things like true tragedies, you still, uh, like, like death is so big, that you're willing to give somebody more time for that, and we all understand death's a mystery too, so it's like death is something I think people have a better time understanding. But uh, when it's something very personal, it could be a breakup, it could be a dream. You certainly experience it on the other end of breakups, where like when someone's in a new relationship and they can't shut up about it. It's something that they are feeling personally very strongly. And because they're feeling that so strongly, like it's consumed them. But it's as if they're high on a drug that you're not on. And if if you've ever been around a friend who's on a drug you're not on, you get real sick of them saying, dude, I'm so fucked up. Oh, dude, I'm high. Because you're like, I'm not on that drug. That's what all these things are like. It's almost like telling somebody about a drug you're currently on when they're not on it. And while they might be initially kind of interested, like, oh, whoa, what's that like? You have a very limited amount of time where they care. But uh, shifting gears a little bit, I uh, I have a friend who is from the Midwest originally and then lives on the East Coast now, and he'll occasionally ask me about Portland. He'll occasionally be like, oh, what's Portland like? And from what I gather, like we don't really get into this stuff, from what I I gather, my friend, he seems like a fairly liberal dude, him and his wife, the little I know about them, I'm like, yeah, they seem like fairly middle-of-the-road liberal people, if I had to guess. And to his credit, it's never come up, but that's the impression I get. But he's still kind of like, oh, what's the deal with Portland? You know, like what's going on there? What's it like? And I always feel a little weird because I live near Portland. I have a lot of friends in Portland. I've never really spent time in Portland. Like I've, when I'm there, I'm just at somebody's house and I go to a store. Like two times in my life, I've gone out to bars when I still drank there. But I, I don't know anything. I don't know what it's like to be in Portland. I really only know the stereotypes of it, too. I know that it's politics and, you know, culture are very similar to Olympia, and Seattle's become that way, too. Uh, but I, I don't really know. I, I mean, I, I do. I do know. But it's just, I, I haven't spent much time there. But the other day, he had sent me a link, or a vid- he sent me a video. And it was a video of, like, a younger, probably like 30-something-year-old white woman, white woman and uh, it was, like, somebody filming a traffic dispute with their phone, and she was confronting this Native American dude, and he was screaming at her, calling her, like, a, like, I think, like, from what I gather from the video, she was saying he had done something, like, cut her off, or done something dangerous, and some sort of road rage incident ensued, and he was screaming calling her a colonizer and, like, telling her to, like, I don't know. Well, the thing was, she initially... I, the thing is, I only watched it once and wasn't paying close attention, but she said something to the effect of, like, get, go back where you came from. But it was... Like, you could tell, like, what she meant is, like, don't come into the city. But how he interpreted it was, like, go back to where you came from. And so he started calling her, like, a white colonizer. But she was, she was like, your textbook... 30 something, probably older millennial Portland liberal woman. And so she stayed very calm and she was, had this very measured response. And, you know, to her credit, she stayed calm, but it was like from her language and everything, you could tell she's very much, you know, part of that zeitgeist that I always complain about, that tons of us always complain about. And so it was funny to see her getting called like the very names that she helped create and even though like i I respected that she stayed calm it was like the a storm that she helped create was coming back to punish her but it was it what it came across like more than anything else when you get away from like the opinions being expressed and everything it, it seemed like theater it seemed like performance art like neither of them seemed real they both seemed to have a script and they were, like, walking around in the street, you know, with their cars parked, like, blocking traffic. And it was like, this just seems like some sort of pop-up performance art. And I don't know that it's not. But my friend was like, is this, is this what it's like there? And I was like, you know, you don't see things like this all the time. But, yeah, this really is what it's like. This really is what a lot of people think and do. And this is kind of their inner monologue. And what they've rehearsed. I didn't say all that, but I was, I was just like, yeah, this, this is a very much what it's like. And, like, two days after that, two days after he sent me that, because I think, like, someone like that, where he, like, I think he lives in, yeah, he lives in uh, the Bronx in New York. Which, you know, is a very, I mean, New York's very, they vote Democrat. It's New York's a very left of center city overall. But it's different. You know, it's a different attitude. It's a big city. And so, like, he's seeing this video of Portland, and he's just like, man, like, is that what it's like there? And I'm like, you know what it is? You know, it's not like every traffic confrontation results in that, but this is the kind of language and dialogue that's being used here. And then, like, two days later, a friend of mine who just moved to Portland from Olympia was visiting, and she was telling me how she went to a store... And there was a girl there in, like, what looked like a, like a, just kind of a unique dress. And the girl, well, the girl, like, said something to my friend first, and was like, oh, I love your tattoos, because my friend has a bunch of tattoos, like full sleeves and, and just, like, different tattoos. And my friend was like, oh, thank you. And she was like, "I, you know, I like your dress, which is just what people say. Like, even if you don't like her dress, you say that, because she just complimented your tattoos. And without missing a beat, the girl in the dress was like, oh yeah, my family makes these. And we have BLM ones, we have rainbow flag ones, like we have one that's like a skull puking a rainbow, she said. And she just volunteered that. And, like, I asked my friend, I was like, was the dress she was wearing that you complimented a political dress? And she was like, no, not that I know of. It was just a dress. I just, she she complimented my tattoos, so I complimented her dress. It's like, that's the way girls communicate, you know? Even if it's insincere. Oh, I like this. Oh, I like that about you. You know, it's, it's nice. It's, it's just, it's like asking someone, how are you, or something. But it was just what got me and, like, why my friend was telling me was just how quickly... The girl like, was like, oh, my family makes these. Oh, and we also have, you know, Black Lives Matter dresses. Like, so they have, I guess, some sort of insignia on them. And then we make rainbow ones, too. Like, she hit the big beats right in a row there. Like a one-two punch. The two signals. But, you know, I said to my friend, I was like, you know, you know what that's like? I mean, that's, like, imagine that same scenario where you say, oh, I like your dress. And she goes, oh, I, my family makes them. We also have ones with Jesus on the cross, featuring Jesus on the cross. We have, you know, some with, um, you know, Blue Lives Matter. You know, it's just the idea of just volunteering that stuff. Because, like, she probably looked at my friend, who is a a liberal woman, but she's realizing now kind of where that ends. And, uh, or, like, what, what, what the boundaries of that are. But my friends, you know, very, her values are all very liberal. But even she was kind of taken aback that this girl so quickly was just like, oh, yeah, we also sell, like, Black Lives Matter dresses and this and rainbow dresses. Not just rainbow, but, like, you know, the obvious flag. And, uh, but, yeah, like, imagine doing that, you know, with any other conviction. Like, about any other set of beliefs. And how they're always bundled together. Like, of course you make those different things. And of course you'd volunteer that. And you probably thought, my friend... Well, my friend probably agrees with you on a bunch of things. Like, you probably saw her and were like, oh, she has a bunch of tattoos, and she's like a millennial. A millennial. So I can tell her about the political dresses we make. My political dresses. But to them, it's not even political. It truly is religious. Like, it it truly is like religious iconography to them and i know everybody says that now but it is true it's culty where like you can't even in, in a portland it was in a gas station mart it was in like a gas station store just like a corner store and just this interaction just and the thing is though like my friend didn't say anything she's like oh cool but it's like if you don't express enthusiasm for that people might see you as suspect or if you were to counter with, oh, you know, and that's not my thing. That person might turn from, like, being giddy to talk about their dresses and to compliment your tattoos to being, like, savage. They might savagely hate you in a moment. Like, if you were just to say, oh, you know, that's not really my thing, but cool, I'm glad you guys are creative. You'd be like, excuse me, that's not your thing? Oh, so you're a Trumpsfeld, the uh, January 666 terrorist, I guess. You know, people are going to jump to that conclusion... And just the absurdity of that. That in like a major city, the 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 cultural climate is so strong, it's blowing so strong in a certain direction that that girl probably didn't think anything about that. Like she probably wasn't saying that to be controversial. Like she didn't bring it up thinking that oh this person doesn't believe in that stuff. She brought it up thinking like oh this is a this is a home run we sell dresses with the right iconography on them. Um, but, uh, like, obviously it was significant enough for my friend to mention it. And then she was telling me how her, her roommate, who's like a self-professed nerd, like in his 40s, he sounds like a nice guy that he's done, he's been cool. But she was telling me he's, he's very political. And I'm like, of course he is. He's, he's a 40-something self-professed nerd living in Portland. Like, of course... Of course he's... He's very political. Because somehow... All those things go together. And just as like... You know, I've talked about this before... But the whole... The whole like... Self-professed nerd thing... Has become interesting to me. Because like... A guy like that... Who's in his 40s... You know... Did grow up in a time... Where, you know... Nerdy interests weren't mainstream. Where you know, like playing Dungeons and Dragons or video games or collecting comics or whatever it is, like that guy grew up in a time where there w- there still was something uncool about that. Like, I, I think that I grew up at a time where it was kind of transitioning thanks to the internet, the popularity of video games, things like that. But that's a guy who did grow up at a time where like, yeah, it probably wasn't cool to be a nerd when he was a kid in the 80s and 90s whenever he was growing up. But it's weird now that that... Like, there's a lot of people who are self-professed nerds... Still act like it's... Unacceptable. When it's like, no, your interests are all mainstream now. Like, there was a point in time where being obsessed with Star Wars... Might not get you beat up, but like... It would be a punchline. You'd be the butt of a joke. Like, oh, adult guys who are obsessed with Star Wars. And then at some point, that just became an acceptable mainstream interest for everybody to be obsessed with forever, regardless of their age. Video games, I mean, there are dads who play more video games than their sons. You know, all of these things that were considered, not taboo, but just reserved for nerds, like Dungeons and Dragons, even. Like, I knew a group of girls who had their own Dungeons and Dragons uh, game going on, and I don't think they ever would have done that 20 years ago. And it's cool they were doing it. There's nothing, I've never played it, but I'm, I'm all for people doing stuff like that. If it's fun, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But point being, like, even something like that is kind of considered, it's for a number of years now, it's been considered kind of hip. So it's interesting to me, like, when someone's a 40-something, they were a nerdy guy growing up, and they're a, they can now claim that. But the entire world has become that way like based on the things that this guy is into what i was told it's just like oh yeah you know that's what everybody is into that's what most adult males are into women love that stuff now like the stuff that made you nerdy then is really not nerdy anymore it's just sort of the state of culture but anyway the guy's also very political because those things often go hand in hand for some reason like the as as you know nerd culture has become mainstream We've also seen where nerd culture has become very politicized. Nerds used to be a political wild card, if they even cared about politics, they usually didn't. But now those two like the, the Reddit sort of person. You know, the Reddit person is is a, the perfect example of this. And I actually thought that, like when I heard this guy described to me, and I'm not trying to put bad juju on my friend's roommate. I he sounds like he's been a good guy, but just I'm just describing. I'm not criticizing. I'm just describing a type of person. But when he was described to me I was like, "Oh, that's that's a guy who's like very active on Reddit." And uh the interesting thing though, like she brought him up cuz she was saying she had a conversation with him about just culture and politics. And again, she's very liberal. Like I this is a good friend of mine. I've been friends with for a very long time and there's still some things I don't even say like even though I know I won't be judged for my beliefs there are some things that I just don't say because it's why even bother like occasionally she'll say something to me like oh like like gender pay gap stuff things like that that are a little more nuanced than I think people like to admit but it's also not worth arguing about um, and I don't really have a hardline opinion on it and I don't, I don't really look at the data. I don't talk about it. I think that's what I'm getting at. These are things that I wouldn't even really talk about to begin with, but I'll hear her say something. and I'll be like, okay, you know, I have a different perspective on that, but it's not important. But what I would say of her beliefs is they're very liberal, but then she was saying she had a conversation with her roommate and he was like, oh, you're a moderate. And I thought that was funny because I'm like, she's not a moderate. Like she just because what's funny though is she's not a very politically engaged person. Like she has certain core beliefs that have stayed pretty much the same. Because that's the thing about a certain type of liberal, and the liberals that I've always liked, is they kind of took the same values from the 1960s, which I'm not necessarily into all those. I don't necessarily agree with all of them. I can agree with some of them. I think there were some good ideas. But as a whole, I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, they, they totally knew the, the youth revolution of the late 60s. You know, they, they totally figured it out. I think there were a lot of problems there. But what I would say of my generation, like my generation's liberals, and definitely, this is definitely true, even more so for Generation X, the millennials still kind of followed this up to a point, was that... Like, we're just gonna kinda live out and perfect what our parents were trying to do. Like, our parents' generation, what they were trying to communicate in the 60s and 70s, we're just gonna kinda live that out and embody it. And we're not gonna call for revolution. We're just gonna gonna kinda live it out. And I think it worked pretty well. I mean, it wasn't utopia, but I think that, that kinda worked well. And up to that point, you know, people who thought that way, it's like they they weren't trying to change everything fundamentally, you know, they weren't trying to break things and deconstruct things. They were basically like, oh yeah, you know, liberal beliefs make sense to me and I'm just going to basically perfect living those. Not that anybody perfected it, but you know what I mean, just that was kind of the goal. It wasn't what we've seen in the last ten years, which was to deconstruct everything, to control people, to change language. It was just sort of like, oh yeah, you know, it doesn't make much sense to be bigoted. It doesn't make much sense to be racist. It doesn't make much sense to hold women back. It doesn't make much sense to, to make weed illegal. Those are kind of the, the basic values. Oh, it doesn't make much sense to invade other countries for their oil. You know, just, those were some of the basic values I grew up around. Like, if someone believed those things, they were pretty liberal. And I always enjoyed hanging out with liberals, like, even though I've never identified that way, I certainly have stuff in common with them. And I found that, like, liberals were fun to hang out with because they had a sense of humor. Some of them were imaginative. They were generally interested in you know, they they generally had like a broader set of interests, and uh, you know, and then and were major proponents of free speech. You know, it was very much liberals who were pushing the importance of free speech during that time, and those beliefs today are considered moderate. And that, well, what I would add too is that like those people, they weren't that politically engaged though they just kind of embodied those values. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to be a bigot. I'm not going to be excessively hateful or prejudiced. It's stupid to make weed illegal. You know, you just sort of live that. And I think a lot of people who believed that way had a sense of humor. Like, what I appreciated growing up about kids who were... might today be called liberal was... In, a, in, in some sort of setting like school, like being in school, those were the sort of people that you could sit next to and you could laugh at how absurd things were. You could laugh at how absurd it was that people took this all so seriously. And it's not a coincidence that that ironic sort of humor became popular among young liberals at that time. And then it ended up getting really gross as, like, irony became a kind of a brand where, like, a lot of stupid people came to realize that, oh, like, I can do things ironically, and then that just, that turned into something else. I mean, we, we haven't recovered from that, but that initial sense of irony was something that I found that liberal friends always had, like, they, they recognized the absurdity of everything. But at some point, they were the ones who started taking everything very seriously and stopped being imaginative and stopped wanting people to think. And so that was a big shift. And back then, when I was growing up, it was very much the evangelical right who was restrictive, controlling, unimaginative, and so they traded places. And uh, now when I think of humorlessness, well, it's pretty obvious who's, who's lacking humor these days. But what, it, what got me thinking about this is just uh, my friend's roommate saying like, oh, well, oh, so you're a moderate. And he wasn't saying it in a mean way, but it shows you what a bubble this guy's in. And I think what he was, what he was sensing in my friend was like, oh, she's not very politically engaged. Like, I was painting her mom's house a couple years ago, and we were watching uh, something. And it, it was when uh, Rutabaga Ginsburg died. and she, she asked her, her parent, or she asked her mom, she was like, "Is this a bad thing or a good thing?" So that tells you everything. Like she's, she's so disengaged from like real-time politics that she didn't even realize, like, the significance of Rutabaga Ginsburg dying. Like, even though she has an opinion on abortion and these things, like, she didn't realize the significance of that. She had to, like, ask her mom, like, is, is that something, like, bad or good or, you know? And, and so, but that political disengagement, what's, what I'm getting at here is that political disengagement translates to being a moderate today, which is interesting. Like, uh to be politically disengaged automatically puts you in the center It makes you a moderate. And it, that upsets people. As I've said many times, both sides, both extremes lash out at the middle because it's a more convenient target, you know? Where it's like, oh, that's closer to me. It's more familiar, so I'm going to lash out at that. And... Uh, you know, it, it, it's 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 kind of like uh, where if if you're if somebody like knows that you're their enemy, like if they know that you have the complete opposite beliefs that they do, they almost like that more because they know how to categorize you. And what bothers people more than anything is the unknown. I mean, I was just saying it a minute ago about synchronicity, how some people have this very defensive, fearful response to synchronicity or the unexplained and reject it and it's, that's kind of what happens when somebody thinks of you as a moderate or an independent or a centrist they kind of think like oh I, I can't really pinpoint exactly where your beliefs begin and end and that makes people uncomfortable because they're like I don't know how to it, it, people would prefer to just hate you than they would to be confused by you or to not know whether or not to hate you or love you but it's interesting to me that we're at a place now where simply being politically disengaged and having what you might call traditional liberal views makes you a moderate in the eyes of a nerdy political activist in Portland it's a mouthful and uh And I think that disengagement from politics, the reason why that automatically makes you seem like a moderate is because the people who aren't moderates, like the people who are on the extremes, which there's more and more, you know, there's, while we think of the extremes as having very few people, we can see where more and more people have gravitated toward hard left and hard right views. And those people are always impassioned. They're always reacting like being engaged to them means being constantly upset or happy, being attached, like revolving around this this rotating disc, and wherever that takes you, wherever that stops, is how you're going to feel, and it's often negative. And so, if you have very hardline political opinions, no matter what they are, they're going to be intense. And so, when someone doesn't have that intensity, you almost think they must not see things my way because if they saw things my way they'd be screaming about it like i am but uh, it's it's a weird time though when someone like my friend is thought of as a moderate it shows you that things really have shifted drastically if somebody like based on what i know of her beliefs like she would have been considered far left as recent as 10 years ago 15 years ago they would have been beliefs that put you firmly on the left. But the way things have shifted, somebody in Portland goes, Oh, so you're a moderate. And that's a dangerous thing to be there. That's a dangerous thing to be. Because, like I said, the extremes tend to lash out at the middle more than they do each other. It's what you see with so called cancel culture. Cancel culture is real. I just don't love that phrase, but everybody knows what I'm talking about when I say it. But it's, it's what we see with cancel culture. We're like, yeah, there are some people who are on the far right who get singled out for various reasons. But a lot of the the, the catty stuff you see with those people, usually what happens with people who are legitimately far right is they get their accounts demonetized and banned and shut down, and they get shadow banned, as they call it. Shadow banned. They get shadow banned. And uh, the people who care about them, which is relatively few people, make a big deal about it. But it doesn't create some like caddy dialogue. And all of these so called dialogues, they're all caddy. The catty dialogue comes out when it's somebody who's more in the middle. It's, it's the way you pe- you see people react to Bill Maher, who, again, like Bill Maher is considered a moderate. There's even people who call Bill Maher right wing today. I've seen people express that view. They think because Bill Maher's not going along with the far left, he's now on the right wing. You know, because people see the moderate. They see the person who's independent as... Because you're not supporting me, because you're not on my side, that means you're indirectly supporting the other side. But you've seen more like the dialogue around Bill Maher. It's very catty. It's very petty and catty. And every show he does, there's a response to it like that. But the difference is like they don't just shut him down and take his income away. It's this, it's, it's all about this like, this dialogue. Because he's more convenient because Bill Maher has always been an outspoken liberal and he stands for a lot of the values that liberals stood for until yesterday. He's more convenient to lash out at cause he's closer. You know, it's like, it's easier to understand if someone's your enemy, but if they're not your enemy, but they're not doing what you want them to do, that almost makes you more mad. But yeah, I don't know. I'd be uncomfortable in a place like Portland. I mean, I'd be uncomfortable here. It's one of the reasons why I limit my social life greatly these days is because when you're in an environment like Portland, Seattle, Olympia, simply being identified as an independent or a moderate is seen as an act of betrayal unto itself. I'm not saying my friend's roommate is thinking all this about her, but just that he would even consider her a moderate at all is pretty crazy to me. Because her, her views really aren't moderate as we typically understand them. But when someone's in a bubble, someone who just doesn't believe what you believe becomes a moderate really quick. And moderates tend to get a lot of hate from people who they have more in common with than they do don't have in common with but another thing about this guy one of the reasons why like i can read into this guy a little bit and i'm willing to say something about it is she was telling me too that he he posted something on facebook like like some sort of like copy paste like chain chain letter quality post and it was like here are some words with a silent k and it said like no k-n-o-w Something else. Like a bunch of really common words that have a silent K. And then it had Republicans. With the joke being that KKK. The KKK is silent in Republicans. That was the joke. And like people who say those things, they think they're really clever. But this is the same guy who called her a moderate. He's making a joke about how Republicans has a silent K. KKK. KKK. KKK, 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 So that tells you about this person. Like that's a person who, you know, their audience probably doesn't include any Republicans. Their audience is probably people who agree with them and it's a signal to them. It's like, hey, Republicans much? Hey, you ever think about, oh God, Republican much? But it's like, that's the view. And like, that's a person who probably knows some Republicans, but they don't really know them. They don't really have a human relationship with any Republicans if they're going to say that. Um, and uh, that's a nightmare to me. Like that form of thinking is a nightmare. It's not even funny. Like that's supposed to be clever. You know, somebody came up with that joke and whoever originally came up with it, I'll give them credit and say that's clever. But then the person who reposts it and reposts it, and now you're getting you just this backwash of a shitty idea. And you just go, man, like that's that's the world people are in though. Where you signal to your tribe, hey, you ever you ever hear how much Republicans suck? And they're like, Yeah, yeah, dude, Republicans silent KKK, dude. Yeah, dude, they're all fucking they they keep their, their white hoods in the closet, man. But it's just that sort of thinking. It's just like, fuck, man. What do you do with that? Where it's just signaling, hey, you ever think about how much the enemy sucks? That's all that is. Hey, guys, did you know the enemy still sucks? They're awful. It's like I've said about gun owners before. People who don't know gun owners and are very pro-gun control, people who are into like taking drastic measures to limit firearm possession uh they'd be surprised by some of the people they know who own guns like if they knew and and some of those people are afraid to mention it because like the only people they're aware of who own guns are the blowhards who brag about it and pose with their guns but there's probably somebody in their life who they don't even know is a gun owner who's a very calm collected rational person who owns a firearm they don't talk about it one because why brag about it Like, why brag about having a gun? But two, you also know that if your friends are liberals and you talk about owning a gun, it's just not worth it. It's not worth the grief. It's like I was saying about my friend who, like, believes the gender pay gap is exactly the way it's been presented. When there's a little more nuance to that. I'm not even dismissing it entirely. I'm just saying there's more nuance to it into why that is. But uh, it's not also not worth arguing about with somebody you care about. I think a lot of gun owners feel the same way where it's like, okay, like I'm a liberal gun owner or I'm just a gun owner who hangs out with liberals. Mm. It's just not worth mentioning because why argue about it? And I don't need to brag about owning a gun. But I had that experience myself. Like even though I'm not against guns in any way, I remember working with a guy, very liberal guy. I hate how much I'm using the word liberal, but what else do you say? Very liberal guy. And I remember like one day he just, he mentioned to me, like, he's like, I own a, like I think we were talking about guns for some random reason. He's like, Oh, I own, I own a Beretta. I was like, you do? Cause he, he did not seem like somebody who would own a gun. And he's like, I actually keep it in my trunk. I keep it in a holster in my trunk or in my car. It's there right now. And I was like, it's amazing. I would never guess. And I would tell you every single one of our coworkers would have been shocked and scared maybe be like what you have a gun in your car which is here but he didn't fit the stereotype like he wasn't a right winger bragging about it he wasn't a, he wasn't preaching the second amendment to everybody he knows he was just a guy who owns a gun and if you were more aware of that like if if these people who are super anti-gun were more aware of how many people have them who they know and they would probably trust with those guns, it should actually be reassuring. It reassures you that there's a lot of sane people out there who own firearms for practical reasons. But you don't think about it because it's not in your face, and it's not a part of polite conversation. Like, it's not polite conversation to just say to your friends, I have a gun. Do you know I have a gun. a gun? I got a gun. I got a gun. You know I have a gun? You know I have a gun? You know I have a gun? You know, you don't say that to people. But it's, it's like the Republican thing where there's probably a bunch of people that these, these there's, there's probably a bunch of people, like someone like my friend's roommate. He probably has people in his life who are Republicans or voted for Trumpsfeld. And he would never know it because they don't volunteer it. And he would think of them as good, decent people. But it's like the way that, the way that everything has been focused is that Republicans are racist bigots. They're irredeemable silent K for the KKK. They're all racist, They're all racist, whatever that means anymore. But that's what people think. And, uh, just kind of crazy though. I mean, my friend can make it work cause that stuff's not that important to her. And she just wants to get by. I wouldn't be able to live with somebody like that. Like I could not live in the same environment. I even just think about, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, I'm very conscientious. Like, if I have a podcast on that's even a little bit controversial, I'm careful about having my door or window open where it's blaring full blast. It's just common decency. Like I, I was walking through a, a neighborhood a couple blocks from here about a year or two ago, and there was an older guy doing garden gardening in his, in his garden. He was gardening in his garden, and he was blasting Ben Shapiro outside. I don't think Ben Shapiro is particularly extreme. He's right wing. He's an Orthodox Jew. He believes in he has Orthodox beliefs. He's a pundit. He's a twerp. But I wouldn't subject my neighbors to that. Like, even though I don't think Ben, and I've listened to Ben Shapiro before. I'm not a fan. And I don't say that as a disclaimer. I'll listen to people more extreme than Ben Shapiro and listen to what they have to say. I'm just not a fan of him. I don't mind him, though. He, he is what he is. He just exists. We need pundits, I guess. Everybody needs a pundit. But I wouldn't subject my neighbors to that. And I, I, I kind of got this feeling seeing this old guy. I was even surprised that he knew who Ben Shapiro was, you know, just because it, it takes a little more effort, I guess. I mean, he, he's, he's famous, but still. This is about two years ago. I was just a little bit surprised this guy was cranking Ben Shapiro, this old guy. But it almost felt like he was doing it to rebel against his neighbors. Because, you know, his neighbors have the, like the signs in their yard that say like in this house, we believe science is real and water is life and whatever else. So like there's guys like that around here who very much rebel against their neighbors. Like there's a neighborhood here. It's a cul-de-sac and every single house has an identical, they're identical, but they're custom made versions of that sign that I just mentioned. Like somebody in that neighborhood, obviously designed their own handmade versions of that sign and like gave them to their neighbors. And so there's like 10 houses in this cul-de-sac, very cult-like, and they all have these hand-painted signs that are just just like a bootleg version of the like, in this house, we think science is real and Black Lives Matter and, you know, all all the bullet points. And there was one house, which as I dropped the phone, there was one house in the neighborhood though It was funny because they had a big Trumpsfeld sign in their window. And I was like, oh, they probably got that Trumpsfeld sign to sort of retaliate. Like, oh, if they're all going to have the hand-painted liberal Ten Commandments, which is what those are, I'm going to put a big Trumpsfeld sign in my yard. And that's the kind of feeling I got from this guy who was just blasting, like blasting Ben Shapiro. It wasn't like he had Ben Shapiro on like a quiet phone speaker it was like he had a speaker system outside he had some bluetooth action going and i don't even think that's offensive like i don't think anything ben shapiro is going to say is offensive but it's just incendiary it's like i wouldn't subject my neighbors to politics and i learned my lesson the hard way like when i first moved back in with my mom right before she died a little while before she died uh I was, I was using her stairs to run. I would run, she has carpeted stairs and I would just run up and down the stairs and listen to podcasts or music. And I was listening to this podcast like, that I was really wasn't even familiar with, but the whole premise is really crass humor, like sex jokes, really explicit stuff that I'm not even that into, but I was just like, this is something to listen to. And I had the window open and I, I didn't realize how loud my speakers were. And the next door neighbors were these, they were younger than I was and they were going to the college. Like two of them were trans. One of them was like a young nerdy guy. So it was, it was, a, they had some sort of, they had the same 10 commandment thing on their, the front of their door. You know, I liked them, you know, like despite the fact that I know we would have problems if we talked about our beliefs as neighbors, I liked these people. Like they were good neighbors, which is all you need. But, uh, so I was just blasting the, this like explicit, like sex joke podcast. It's just like dudes making explicit sex jokes, pretty offensive stuff. And it didn't dawn on me that like my stereo could be heard so clearly out the window. It's across the room, that kind of thing. But it turns out it carried. And I went out there one day and like, they were outside talking and like I walked out right as this, the guy was finishing his sentence and he was like, and I just heard like this, this like really, he he was using like the buzzwords they use, but he's like, "I, I just heard this really like explicit sexual humor. And he was clearly offended by what he heard. And I don't blame him because I shouldn't have subjected them to that. Like I didn't think, Oh, he serves him right. You fucking pussy. You know, I didn't think that way. I was like, that's embarrassing. You know, I I don't want to subject my neighbors to things like that. I feel the same way about politics, too. Like, I don't want to subject my neighbors. Like, I don't want them to think about what I'm listening to, whether they agree or disagree. I don't want them to think about what I'm listening to. So this dude, like, blasting Ben Shapiro, like, obviously kind of retaliating against the dominant culture here. But it's like, I don't even want to do that. I don't even like going against the grain that much. And uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's just kind of how things are now, though, where it's like making these statements. You want to be like, oh, hey, uh, I don't agree with you guys. Because you're not going to convince anybody. And that's the thing to always remember. It's like, well, you're not really going to do any convincing. You know, the sign in your yard isn't going to convince anybody who disagrees with you. The Facebook post about how Republican has a silent K because they're all KKK members, that's certainly not going to convince anybody who's on the fence or who disagrees with you. So who's it there for? Well, it's just there for your tribe. It's there for your your weird discombobulated tribe. And you're just letting them know, which is what a lot of this stuff is. You know, it's, it's how I feel when I see someone who like it's interesting because like dyed hair used to be something that just meant like okay that person's either rebellious or they're trying to rebel they're trying to be different in some way and then now though it's like it's kind of a political calling card like i've said this before about how like when i see a girl who's like 24 years old at target and her hair is dyed purple one of the sides is shaved, it's cut kind of chin length and then swooped over. She's going for some sort of not just gender neutral attire, but it's in a very specific style that, that a very specific type of person wears. And she has like random tattoos on her leg. I can bet with a high amount of probability what every single one of her beliefs is about any given subject, even totally unrelated subjects. And I don't do that out of judgment. I don't do that to go, oh, look at the little uh, card-carrying lib. Oh, look at that little card-carrying lib. Look at her. You know, I don't even think of it that way. Obviously, there's a little bit of judgment that you can't avoid. But I just sometimes I see that and I think like, yeah, I know probably without fail, every, how she feels about every single issue that people care about today. And I remember having that thought at the school a few years ago. I was walking on this, at, the, at the campus and I saw this girl and I, I just thought to myself, I wonder how she voted as a joke to myself. And I, it kind of made me chuckle because I was like, I wonder how she voted. Oh, I bet she voted for Trump's Because there's just no way. And uh, I'm sure that person exists. Like I know, I remember these videos went viral around la- the last election where there was a girl who looked like that. She had black frame glasses, nerdy looking. Her hair was dyed green, short. She dressed that way. And she was making all these videos about how she'd been woken up. Like, she was a card-carrying liberal. And then she started to notice the, the seams. Like, she started to notice the cracks. And then she, like, did a little investigation and realized, like, how fucked up things were. And she did a complete 180, which isn't necessarily a good thing. Like, you don't want people to do a 180, but at the same time... It's like I said about that shooter on the 4th of July, people trying to say that he believed this or he was a liberal or he was a Trump supporter. Do you think that kid, do you look at that kid and really think that he has a firm sense of identity? I don't. That, that looks like somebody who's just been desperately searching for an identity of some kind his whole life. And even if he had certain opinions, I wouldn't even believe his fucking opinions. He doesn't even know what his fucking opinions are. So people like that, like, there's more people like that than anybody is ever willing to admit. There's more people who really don't know what the heck they're doing. So as a result, they really easily could do a 180 if they're exposed to the right information or they have the right wake-up call. And so this girl who went viral, the reason she went viral is because she was like a stereotypical young, non-binary, non-binary liberal girl, and she just had an awakening and was like I'm going to vote for Trump's fault. and it was novelty though cuz it was like look at this girl like she's she's not what you would expect and i think she kind of milked that she was like oh look at me i look this way but i'm but i'm not that way but without fail you could bet on it the reason why this girl went viral is because in any other situation you could bet money that you don't just know the core of that person's beliefs but you probably know every single one down the list. Like going back to those yard signs that are the liberal 10 commandments of we think science is real, open borders, water is life. Like if you were to go down the list and you were to go, okay, yeah, like um, hate has no home here. I agree with that. Love is love. Okay, I agree with that too. Science is real. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. You go down the list and you agree with everything, and then they get to water is life, and you go, ugh, I don't know. I don't know if water is life. Or if you even say, like, maybe there's a little more to water than just being life. I think water sustains life, but it's not life itself. I I, I don't think I agree. I don't think I agree that water is life. It's the only one I'm not sure about the only bullet point I'm not sure about is the whole water is life thing. That's enough to get you kicked out. So there's incentive to agree to everything and to adapt very quickly. I always talk about this, but you know, there's, there's motivation to adapt very quickly and to act like that, apta- that adaptation didn't happen. That's the crazy thing is you adapt to the new belief the new talking point, and then you act like you never adapted. You always held that view. And that's that's how untrustworthy and dishonest all this stuff is. And that's why I say someone like my friend, she's a lib. You know, and I say that, you know, this is a friend of mine, I respect. But still, like, if you were to go down the list of things she believes, she's a liberal. Ten years ago, she would have been considered... Maybe not radical left, but she would have been considered firmly left of center. But simply keeping those same beliefs, which were basically the same beliefs. Like her mom and dad were, um, they're like Buddhists and hippies from the 60s. And so she basically had her parents' views, identical. Like her and her mom and her dad all had the same views because those views were never updated. There was no longer anything to adapt to. It was like, oh yeah, the things they were talking about in the 60s were the right things, and we just need to work toward those. Because that was the idea. The idea that like my generation initially kind of responded to was, okay, liberal values make sense. What they were saying in 1969 makes sense. Let's just continue trying to improve on that and reach that goal. But then in the last decade and no doubt it was building for longer than that, somehow it was decided that, like, no, we're actually going to change these goals. We're going to change our ideas. We're no longer trying to realize the goals of 1969. Those goals aren't good enough. And so someone like my friend, all of a sudden, she's a moderate. And uh, what's interesting, though... And I think this is one of the more divisive issues. It's clearly one of the most divisive issues is that in secret she's really disturbed by the gender trans stuff. Not the fact that it exists. Not the fact that some people live that way. At the political momentum behind it. The way it's been framed. What it's done to women's identities. Like she'll secretly confide in me because I'm her friend and she knows she can trust me that like that stuff is off-putting. And it gives her hesitation. And she told me her mom feels the same way. Like her mom, like once again, kind of secretly admitted to her that she feels the same way. And people who are all for that stuff would say like, well, that just shows you that Even our own allies, even our own allies aren't allies and they're actually transphobic and all this stuff. And it's like, no, it's just like you've asked them to change their understanding of of the world. And you haven't asked, you've demanded. And even though they don't say anything and they go along with the basics of the program... They're actually really put off and it's really divisive and weird. It's weird. You know, it's, it's the only word to use. And uh, that seems to be the big dividing point is that particular issue. Not even race plays as big of a role. Like because race is very divisive, like BLM is very divisive, everything around that. But I don't think it's as divisive because the thing about most liberals I know is even if they weren't gung-ho for something like BLM in summer 2020, they're still sympathetic toward it. Like they still see it in the, the most positive light because they haven't been exposed to anything else. The trans thing though, that's the one where deep down something inside of them says this doesn't feel right. Something about the way this is being pushed... Something about what is being demanded of the way we think doesn't feel right. And I don't know. And It's interesting that people are afraid to say that. People are afraid of that one. Um, I even hesitate. But I don't really give a fuck at this point. Um, but even I kind of hesitate, depending on the situation... And like you can see how much this infects your brain, because like last year it was about a year ago, I was doing some writing, you know, about uh, old mafia figures from 100 years ago, 150 years ago, and talking about like them coming here from Sicily. And it crossed my mind not to write this way, but it crossed my mind that somebody could potentially write this way. We're like I'm talking about these men, these mafia members who came from Sicily to the U.S. in like 1905. And it crossed my mind where I was like, oh, would I be expected to write this today and say these mafia members came to the U.S. And while they were classified as men, we don't know how they actually identified. You know, we don't know, you know what they actually felt inside. And I was like, that is how people think today. Like that's kind of a caricature of it. But I was like, if somebody was writing about that, they might be inclined to do that. Oh, these men came to the U S in 1905, but we don't know how they actually felt inside. You know, so it's like even just writing about men The fact that it even crossed my mind that there would be any alternative way to view that shows you how deeply this infects people. And then there's people who go full force into what I'm talking about who write that way about everything. And it's interesting because you can really tell a lot about people from the words they use. You know, I've been talking on this show since the beginning... Since the start of every night to school night or night school, I've been talking about you know our uh, culture of disclaimer and apology. How apologizing is a currency, and how we are compelled to give disclaimers. Like you, you have to say like I love women, but did you see what women are? Do-? It's like you if you're going to criticize something. Or or not even criticize, but just simply think and speak critically about it. You feel like you have to express some sort of admiration for that thing to balance it out or to signal that you don't hate it. Like I love women. This is a disclaimer right now. I love women. Don't take anything I say about women too seriously, because I love women. I do, I love women. As people, as friends. I'm also attracted to women, but it's like some of my favorite people throughout my entire life have been women. Isn't this a great disclaimer, by the way? Some of my favorite people have my entire life have been women. You know, but really like, and that's, and that's what I'm saying right now is actually the trouble of this disclaimer world that we live in, because like, you can't even just say something true without it sounding like a disclaimer. And You know, usually you care about the things that you have opinions on. Like, if I'm critical of people, or if I make an observation about people, it comes from the fact that I love people, and I'm noticing something that seems awry. And uh, but the problem is the way the way that we talk about these things requires you to say like, "I love black people," but did you ever notice that, that black people? You know, it's like you have to qualify everything you say with a disclaimer of some kind. And that's people are very aware of it too. They know what you're doing when you do it and you do it unconsciously. It's so heavily reinforced that it's like you do it unconsciously and you're worried that someone will get the wrong impression. And then apologies play a big role in that. Like you give disclaimers in this culture so that you don't have to apologize after the fact. That's the idea behind it. Oh, if I say this now, I won't have to apologize later. But we can see that apologies are are forced and they're very strange. You know, because we have platforms for these things, like you see it with politicians. Like I've never completely understood it. Why when a politician cheats on his wife, how he does a press conference where he like admits to it and apologizes. And it's like, I understand that you're a public figure and an elected official, and your immoral behavior, I guess, gives gives people a – people react to that because you're a public official. But it's like ultimately you cheating is between you and your wife. So why do a press conference? But you can see where that's sort of how everybody operates now. You see it with public figures where – if they're involved in some controversy, something compels them to apologize. And simply apologizing shows who you're subservient to. If somebody apologizes for doing something offensive, it tells you who their masters are. Oh, I, I made a, an off-color joke. I'm so sorry. You know, I just hadn't thought about it and I'm, I'm learning you know, we all make mistakes and I'm learning and I I realize the error of my ways. Some people reached out to me and they told me why what I said was bad and blah, blah, blah. That that simple act of apologizing to nobody in particular, because that's what I'm getting at, apologizing to nobody in particular. You know, it's one thing like you make a joke about Asian drivers or something and an Asian person says something to you and they're like, hey, you know, kind of hurt my feelings that you stereotype my people as bad drivers you go oh hey i'm sorry you know i thought it was funny in the moment i actually love asians you know you'd, you'd apologize to that person be like I, you know i didn't mean to hurt your feelings like even if you don't think that what you said was that bad or that they misinterpreted how you meant it you still might apologize to somebody on an individual level just to be like okay yeah you know you took the time to reach out to me directly to let me know you were upset i'm going to acknowledge that in some way maybe by apologizing but what we do is we do these apologies to nobody in particular in, in particular and you see it with social media or where it's like somebody does something and you can tell where they sit you can tell like who their friends are i mean that's a big indicator like if somebody does something relatively mild But it upsets the liberal masses, and they tuck their tail between their legs and they apologize. Well, that tells you that their social group is probably heavily liberal, and they want to keep their friends, and it's important for them to have standing in that group. Maybe their career. I mean, I understand the career ones a little more, it still sucks. But I understand, like, if your employer makes you apologize or something like that, everyone has to make a living, you know? So I, I'm a little more sympathetic, even though I hate that it happens. I'm, I'm more sympathetic to the individual when they apologize under those circumstances. But when it's just in general for no particular reason, I'm like, what are you doing? Who are you apologizing to? Even if there are groups of people out there who accept your apology, another wave of people isn't. Who are you going to appeal to? And then the people who liked you, the people who agree with you, they now don't want to support you because they're like, oh, look, you just gave in. You gave right in. And by giving in, you showed who your masters are. But what got me thinking about that was I saw this video of these two people who look like, once again, they're, they're straight out of central casting. It's a guy and a girl. I'm sure at least one of them is non-binary and uh, dyed hair, all the fashion. You can tell exactly what they believe just by looking at them. They run some sort of co-op cafe. And sure enough, like their employees accused them of being racist and classist and... They accused them of like gentrifying the neighborhood, all those just bullet points they hit on. And because these people are part of that cult, they completely tuck their tail between their legs and they apologize. And they released this weird performative apology video where they used all of the buzzwords. I don't even know them. I, I know them when I hear them, but it's all of the buzzwords people use in their apologies about learning and being educated and... All of that stuff. And it just sounds like nonsense. But those keywords, because what it is, it's not even about them string stringing logical sentences together because these sentences aren't logical, but they're mantras. And these mantras are filled with keywords that when the target audience hears those keywords, they go, oh, they're saying the right thing. Because you can't just apologize. You have to use the right keywords and phrasing. Which is why the saddest thing of all is when someone gives some half assed apology, but they don't do it right, and then nobody's happy. The people who otherwise would have stood by them are kind of embarrassed and like, oh, look at you, you gave in. I don't really want to support someone who gave in. The people who they're apologizing to are like, we don't believe your apology, which is the go to answer, and good, you know, they should feel that way. The people being apologized to should say, I don't believe your apology because that's the thing. Like these apologies are manipulative, not just, they're not just manipulative on behalf of the people who forced the apology. They're manipulative on on behalf of the person who's apologizing. And in many ways, what that manipulation is, is them saying, I just want to survive. I just want to get by. I just want this to be over. But it's also signaling. It's also letting them know, like, no, I have the same master as you do. And they're trying to save face and save their position. They don't want to lose their status among that group. And so they're doing something manipulative. They're lying. They're giving a fake apology to not lose their standing. So even though it's about survival and keeping people from breathing fire down their neck. There's also something where they're trying to like stay where they're at in the pecking order. There's something manipulative. And I, seeing this video of this couple, I don't know if they're a couple like together, but these, this man and woman, whatever they identify as giving this like keyword drenched, half-assed fake apology. I was just like, yeah, this is just what they do. There's a lot of people out there who just spend all their time apologizing. and But they have to apologize in this very specific way, like a mantra. Otherwise, it's not acceptable. Disclaimers and apologies. And we've ruined what those are. They don't mean anything. They're depersonalized. It's just pure pathology. It's just... It's the brain fueled by pure pathology. And I can't even feel bad for the people because there there used to be a part of me that would feel bad for someone when they apologize. Like, oh man, it sucks. They got forced into doing that. But then you start to see the people who don't apologize. And they actually end up better off. They have their pride. And uh, oftentimes people leave them alone. They realize, oh, I can't touch that person. I can't get a reaction out of that person. So unless you have something to personally apologize for, why would you apologize? It's not going to get the result you want. Everybody's going to think less of you. Unless it's something that since deserves a sincere apology, which most things don't. Most things don't, most things don't need an apology. You know the things, like you know the things that you've done that warrant an apology from you. Your intuition tells you, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That hurt this person. I am sorry. You feel sorry. But some people have learned, oh, if I don't apologize, nothing happens. People are mad at me for a second, but the sharks don't smell blood in the water. And so you really have no reason to apologize. And I used to be more sympathetic with people who did apologize, but we've reached a point where I have no sympathy for it. You don't have to do that. And in fact, you're giving in. You're actually giving the beast more strength. You're giving the machine more power when you do that. So uh, why do it? But yeah, a place like Portland, you know, someone tells you you have a nice dress, And you immediately volunteer that you make the dresses and you also have Black Lives Matter ones. And I always feel a little weird. Like there's a house in my neighborhood that has, I think they took it down. But there's a house in my neighborhood that has a a Black Lives Matter placard in their yard. And the people directly across the street are black. And I'm like, I wonder what they think. Like every day they wake up and like if they open their blinds, the first thing they see is a BLM sign across the street. How do they feel about that? Do they feel good about it? Do they feel more welcome? They probably feel a little weird about it, I bet. You know, I don't think they necessarily see like, oh, there's, I can count on those people. You're lucky if those people even say hi to you. You're lucky if your neighbor even says hi to you, yet you know their political beliefs. And it's weird though, because there is that white savior complex where the way especially liberal women have taken on these causes, they kind of have this savior complex. It's, it's very similar to like the white knight, which isn't about race. Probably is now. Nowadays, if you say white knight, it probably has a racial connotation. But you used to hear white knight like a white knight was a guy who was manipulative, who went out of his way to like speak up for women and say nice things about women, but it was manipulative. He was doing it for his own benefit to be the nice guy. He wasn't somebody who was just standing up based on principle. He was doing something manipulative. And that's kind of how I see these things. Like this sort of white savior complex that has taken on an issue like Black Lives Matter. It's kind of the same thing. Like I don't know what these black people think. Maybe they look out the window every morning and they're like, oh, our neighbor really cares about us. Yo, dude, our neighbor really cares about us. I would just be distracted. I'd be like, fuck. And it's awkward. It's just kind of awkward because you're like, yeah, that is, it's kind of weird. You know, what are you supposed to think about that? Does that mean that if you go over there and you ask to borrow a cup of sugar, they'll give you a pound. They'll give you all the sugar in their house. Like, what does that even mean? How does it even translate? It's all so abstract. But that's one of those funny things to me. It's just like you have that sign in your yard. But I mean, what's funny about all this, though, is it's like Trump's felt he set the ultimate example of being non-apologetic to the point where like he doesn't even apologize when maybe he should. You know, uh, But I think people could learn from that. Like, a guy like that, of course, they continued to come after him. They will never not go after him. But he's an example, too, where if he did apologize, it wouldn't have changed things. Like, if Trump's felt apologized, his supporters would be mad at him, and the people who hate him would still hate him. So he's kind of the, the ultimate example of that, of like the most hated guy. The pe- more, more people than anybody ever in history sat around obsessing over how much they hate this guy. But it wouldn't have done him any good to apologize for anything he did. Even if it was sincere, even if he felt genuinely bad, it wouldn't have done him any good. And you can see where the way he handled those things was just like, it just kind of bounced off of him. He's just like this, this rubber man and things just bounce off of him and he looks rubber. I walked in, you know, I mean, I mean, it's interesting that like the, the president of the United States for four years was the person who gives less of a fuck than anybody else in the country. I mean, Seriously. That sounds like a joke, but it's really not. Like, yeah, he cared about his haters. He's he's vain and obsessed with his haters and all that. But like, he didn't give a fuck about his own conduct and what he said at all. And uh, it was kind of something to witness because in a climate where like disclaimers and apologies are the ultimate currency in pop culture in in our civil discourse the fact that the president and the biggest guy of all was just like oh yeah i don't do that i don't do that and the way he spoke you know made it impossible to hold him accountable it was it's just i mean i think a lot about his his the way he talks cuz it's it's obviously mesmerizing people who hate him are mesmerized by it people who love him are mesmerized by it and somebody I think it was a, it was Shane Gillis, the comedian Shane Gillis, pointed out that like one of Trump's main uh, like speaking mechanisms is he talks about doing something and then he describes himself doing that in the next word. Like like the example he gave is like when Trumpsfeld does a speech, he'll be like, "Boy, there's a lot of people here." I, said, I came in here, I said to myself, boy, there's a lot of people here. I wish I could do a better Trumpsfeld voice. But it's so true. That's what he does. It's so true. That's what he does, though. It's like he, he talks about doing something or seeing something, and then his very next sentence is him. It's meta. And he probably didn't do that. Like, Trumpsfeld probably didn't walk into the arena. He didn't look at the arena and say out loud, boy, there's a lot of people here. But in his speech, he's like, there's a lot of people here. I came in, I said to myself, boy, there's a lot of people here. You know, it, he, he doesn't actually, it's just, it's just a weird speaking mechanism and it's kind of mesmerizing. And I think it's because it's meta. It's like he, he makes a statement and then he takes a step back and he talks about himself making that statement. It's really interesting. He does it all the time. Another thing he he does is he he says, like, it's like I've been saying, or, you know, he'll refer to himself having, he refers to everything as if it's been going on infinitely. A funny example of that is, this was an amazing event, when Kanye, when Kanye, when Kanye, Kanye, Kanye West went to the Oval Office with Jim Brown the former Browns running back, Jim Brown, when they went and spoke to Trumpsfeld, these two black men spoke to him in the office. And Kanye was like having a manic episode going off about how like making shoes relates to the universe and like helps people on the street. It was just this like manic monologue. And you could tell tell, like Trumpsfeld wasn't listening because he's not a listener. Like Trumpsfeld is the guy who... When somebody talks to him, he's not listening to what they say. He's saying like, "Uh uh-huh, but he never takes it in. And that's sort of what makes him what he is. He's never listening to other people. Like you couldn't tell Trumpsfeld about your dreams. Trumpsfeld probably doesn't give you consent to tell him about your dreams. "Hey, Hey, Donald, like you wouldn't believe what was in my dream. He's a good example where if you told him that he was in your dream, he'd be like, well, tell me about it. I'd like to hear about it now. I'd like to hear about it now. But you could tell he was just like this monologue from Kanye. He was just like nodding, but you could tell he was just like totally in his own mind. And then Kanye finished and Trump, Trumpsfeld was like, can you believe that? Wow. He And he looked at all the reporters in the room. And he was like, what do you guys think of that? What do you guys think of that? You know, he was just, uh, he didn't hear a word of it. He just knew that Kanye was sitting there exploding with words about the universe and shoes and Chicago and whatever, whatever his keywords are. But Trump's always like, what do you think of that? Huh? Wow. Like in his mind, it was just like this human is just like pontificating about nonsense. This is amazing. What do you guys think of that? But then like Jim Brown, like who probably has some sort of uh, brain damage from football, he was just like, anything you, you, I could ever do for you, let me know. And Trumpsfeld said to the, to the audience, he's like, you know, the thing I love about Jim is uh, what I've always loved about Jim, this is what I've always loved about Jim, he's always been willing to serve. He's always been committed to, to serving, something like that. But what was funny about it, what I noticed is like the way Trump said it was what I've always liked about Jim. This is what I've always liked about Jim. He probably never thought about that before in his life. Like, he probably never thought about how Jim Brown is committed to serving people and is, is willing to give his strength to help people. Like, Trump still has probably never thought about that. But when he's referring to them, he's like, I've always, like, I've always said, Jim's just, he's always ready, ready to serve. It's just funny to me though. Cause that's a big part of Trump's speaking mechanism is it's like, I've always said, I've been saying it's, it's always like part, he refers to it as if it's like been part of this unending dialogue since the beginning of time. We all do that a little bit though. I, I realize that I do that on this show even though it's true, like in my case, but I'll say, it's like I said, it's like I, I talked about this before, like you're communicating that this is not a new thought to you. And that's what Trump's felt is doing when he does that. He's communicating like, this isn't a brand new thought you're hearing right now. This is what I've been saying. This is what I've been saying forever. I've always said that Jim has been committed to providing service to help this country. I've always thought that. It's like I've been saying, it's like I said before, it's just, it's, it's an interesting thing that a lot of us do, but he does it to an extreme degree where Trumpsfeld really wants to make you aware that this isn't the first time he's thought this and it's not the first time he said it. In fact, he's telling everybody about it and it plays into that thing Shane Gillis pointed out where he says something and then he describes himself saying that again. So he like takes it's like an out of body thing or something where it's like I said oh boy look at this crowd. I came in and I said look at this crowd. It's just it's it's like there's this self referential thing that's interesting about it, and it's not just the narcissism or the obvious stuff that people point out about him. There's something else going on there that I haven't quite figured out. <laughs> but anyway, just his his manner of speaking, I, I think. It's going to be very difficult for anybody else to do that. Like people like DeSantis for standing for basically the same values. But what attracted a lot of people to Trump's Feld is that, that he's just like made out of rubber. He's just like this self-referential machine that's made out of rubber. And <laughs> that's what people want. That's what a certain person wants. It's like I've always been, it's like I've always been saying it's like I've always been saying that's what people want I wish I could do a good impression of him actually because people that's the thing that's that's the weird thing like I heard like somebody actually said to me once a few years ago whenever whenever Alec Baldwin was doing his Trumpsfeld impression on SNL they mentioned like oh he's the best he does the best Trumpsfeld impression and I was like have you seen it It's a really bad impression. Like, that is not a good impression of Trump's And it's not even a funny one. And it's like, if you're going to do an impression, do it well. Because it's funny when people do it well. Like, that guy Shane Gillis. Like, he does an impression of Trump's that had me laughing out loud, which I don't do very often. Because I was like, holy shit, he has the cadence down. He has the voice down. And that makes it funny. And Norm Macdonald had an interesting take on this. I think he was talking about Trumpsfeld, but he might have been talking about someone else. But no, you know, he might have been talking about the SNL-Trumpsfeld thing, where Alec Baldwin said, the reason why, or sorry, Alec Baldwin said, Norm MacDonald said, where Norm MacDonald said, in order to do a good impersonation of somebody, you have to love them. You have to like them. Maybe he didn't say love, but he said you have to like them. And I was like, "That's an interesting thought," and that—that that is what's missing. Because the thing about Shane Gillis doing a good Trumpsfeld impression, you can tell he likes him. Like Shane Gillis is a guy who I'm not even that familiar with. He's always on podcasts. I did watch his stand-up special, which I don't—I don't watch stand-up specials, but I, I decided to check his out, and he's a very funny guy. I like Shane Gillis, but he first got like really well known because he was uh, supposed to be a new cast member on SNL. The night that they announced it, this is how crazy shit is. The night that they announced Shane Gillis was the new a new cast member on SNL, someone went through every single podcast he had ever done, and found one where he where he did an impression of an Asian person, and that's obviously considered offensive. So he got kicked off of SNL before he even officially joined. They had just announced that he was a, the new member, and they immediately kicked him off. And you know he seems like a pretty middle of the road guy, but like one of the re- when he started talking about Trumpsfeld as part of his act, he was like, "Can we just admit now that Trumpsfeld was really funny?" Hasn't he's like, hasn't enough time passed that we can just admit he was funny? Because that was the thing that always got me: is two people could watch Trumpsfeld and he says something that everybody agrees is outrageous. And one person, who might not even be a Trumpsfeld supporter, they're just not ideologically possessed, might hear that and be like, holy shit, that was funny. That was ridiculous. But that was fucking funny. Whether Trumpsfeld's in on the joke or not, that's fucking funny. But the person next to them is going to be like, oh my God, did you hear what that piece of shit said? Did you hear what that piece of shit said? Oh my fucking God. You know, it's just interesting that like two people can sit there and one's going to react to just, and I'm talking about something like fairly, fairly innocuous. Like Trumpsfeld said some things that are fairly innocuous in the grand scheme of things. And one person must be like, oh, that's crazy, but funny. Whereas another type of person hears the same thing. And is just like, oh my fucking God. Oh my God. You know, it's just funny. And that was something that I never understood because, like, my mom hated him. My mom hated Trumpsfeld. But she would tell me things where she'd be like, oh, you, did you hear what he said today? And she would be laughing like she thought it was the funniest thing in the world. That's why I could actually talk to my mom about those things, even though she voted for Hillary or whatever. You know, we could joke about those things because she saw the humor and absurdity in Trumpsfeld. And even though she hated them and it didn't change the fact that she hates him... She like, I I remember her head, like rolling back, laughing at things he said. I mean, like, I I don't, I don't see how anybody didn't think it was funny when he was talking about, they were talking about POWs and they were like, well, you know, he was talking shit about John McCain and they were like, well, you know, he was a POW, you know, he served this country and was a prisoner of war. And Trump's like, I like the ones that don't get caught. That's fucking funny that the president would say that or a politician of any kind that a public figure even someone who's not involved in politics the idea that they would make a crack about a prisoner of war from our military and say i like the ones who don't get caught like that's fu- to even come up with that that's fucking crazy <laughs> and how do you not laugh at that especially what's funny about that too is cuz the people who are upset about that are the same people who hate the fucking troops. <laughs> you know? It's like the same people who are, who are offended by that are a lot of the people who hate the troops and, like, hate the military and, and all that. So it's like... That tells you something weird's going on, that, like, the same people who are like, oh, it was, it was totally fine that people spit on the troops at Vietnam protests are like, can you believe what Trump's felt said? Can you believe that Trump's felt said... I like the ones who don't get caught. Like, to even think of that. I, the thing is, I, I think, I try to think about things. Like, I, I you know, I, I think about things that are funny and, and irreverent. That would never even cross my mind to be like, oh, yeah, POWs suck. I like the ones who don't get caught. I like the soldiers who don't get caught. Like, like that seems like something that, like, maybe if you're in the military, you'd find that offensive. But then guess what? Like, all of these pro-military people who voted Trumpsfeld, like, Thought it was funny. They didn't change their tune. They were just like, yeah, it's a ridiculous comment. But it's interesting that like everybody should have been able to be like, that's fucking funny. Because it doesn't hurt our country. It doesn't hurt our country. Because it's obviously a joke. Like it's not like Donald Trumpsfeld had some hardline lifelong opinion where he thought POWs were lame for getting caught. It was just an off-the-cuff crack because that's what he does. He talks shit. But that one, I was just like, why can't everybody agree that that's outrageous, ridiculous, absurd, but really funny? And so that's like kind of like Shane Gillis. He was just like, can't people just admit he was really funny? But he, And he was saying, like, Gillis was saying, like, I've said that to liberal friends of mine, and they get really mad at me. They're like, how could you find any—they were like, nothing he does is funny. Nothing about him is funny. And it's like, Really? Like, even if I hate somebody, I can still find their antics funny, and often I do. But, I mean, he did set a sort of example. Like, you don't have to like the guy. You don't have to feel anything about the guy. But he set an example of how to deal with more hate directed his way than anybody in history. The difference with him, that anybody sane you know, anybody sane would not do is that he soaks it in and it gives him energy. Like if I sat around knowing that half the world was thinking about me and how much they hated me 24 hours a day, it would affect me. Like I might not be as upset as somebody else, but I'd be like, fuck, I feel that psychic energy. I know right now that there's millions of people saying mean things about me and my family. That upsets me. It's a lot to deal with. With him, he just ate it up. It fueled him. He loves it. He loves antagonism. But where somebody could learn from a guy like that, though, is like, don't apologize. Don't back down. If a guy who dealt with that much hate from other people, if you could deal with that much hate from that many people and still conduct yourself that way by not apologizing and giving in, And living in this world of disclaimer and apology. Well I think anybody can. You just have to train yourself to do it. And ask yourself who the fuck is it for? Who is this apology for? Who is the person? Who are the people? Who's the group? And why are you representing them? But... uh, watching this these cafe owners apologize in their videos like this doesn't even sound sincere it sounds performative it's just hitting on the right mantra and inserting the right keywords and tucking your tail between your legs but trying to save yourself in the process and people don't respect it nobody respects it they smell blood in the water they see weakness and it's not about might is right like it's not about just overpowering everybody it's simply not being affected not giving into that not worrying about social consensus cuz it's manufactured to begin with You know that social consensus that you're responding to is fake to begin with like Sticking with politics, like, I remember learning this. I remember, like, becoming vividly aware of how the media works when I was a teenager and Howard Dean was running for president. At that point, I was like, yeah, I'll vote Democrat. Yeah, I'll vote Democrat. You know, th- those were my mind was that. I was a teenager. I don't even know. I guess that was the first election I would have voted in. But I was probably, like, 17 years old when, when that election was ramping up. And Howard Dean, he was ex-military, very liberal. I liked what he stood for. You know, I, I liked Howard Dean. Out of all the can, out of all the Democrat candidates in that election, Howard Dean was the only one I liked. And then he did that thing where he gave that campaign rally, and he kind of yelled. He got really excited at the end. He's like, "Oh, we're going to Delaware. We're going Washington. And we're we're going here. Woo!" He did kind of like a a woo. And his voice kind of cracked. It wasn't the best woo you ever heard. But right when that happened, the media started this campaign against him. And it was completely manufactured because nobody sane, no sane citizen would watch that speech and think anything other than, wow, he got riled up. He was at a campaign rally. And guess what happened at a campaign rally? He rallied the crowd and he got hyped and he shouted He didn't scream. It wasn't gibberish. It wasn't animalistic. It was just a guy running for president saying, we're going to go to all these cities and we're going to win. And then we're going to go to Washington. Woo. Woo. It's like Ric Flair, basically. The media destroyed him over that. Like, obviously they'd been looking for something. He wasn't the pre-approved candidate. Because the thing about Howard Dean, and I don't even remember all the details of his positions. I know he was very, I think he was very anti-war, which I liked. But I don't remember all his positions. I know he was into like universal healthcare. You know, he was a Democrat. But uh, there was nothing controversial about him. He just wasn't the preferred candidate of the system. And so they were waiting for him to do something, and they couldn't find anything. It's almost like what I talk about with bullying and kids being mean to each other. We're like, yeah, if a kid sees that another kid is fat, they're going to point that out and be like, gee, you're fat, dude, look how fat you are. You know, They're going to point out that that kid's fat. But if that kid's not fat, they're going to find another reason. Oh, he wore a yellow shirt to school today. Dude, let's make fun of him for wearing a yellow shirt. Oh, dude, you thought you'd be really cool today to wear a yellow shirt? Oh, look at you. You, you. you you, think you're a flower? You think you're a dandelion wearing your yellow shirt? Like, kids will attack each other over anything. The example I use, I always use on this show is if, like, three little boys go to the ice cream stand and two of them get, like, an orange popsicle and their friend gets a red popsicle, the two kids who got the orange popsicle are going to be like, Oh, you so say you got the red popsicle? You gay? You gay? You gay? You know, that's what they're going to do. And it's not, because there's, it's not because the red popsicle is gay or it means anything. It's simply the fact that that's something we can point out. He got the red popsicle. We didn't. Let's make fun of him. That's kind of what the media did to Howard Dean. Like they couldn't find something obvious. They couldn't find any real dirt on him. So because he like shouted, because he, he did a little woo, woo, argh, whatever noise he made. Because he did that, they just played that on repeat. And then they said, he's unfit to be president. Look at him. He doesn't have control over his emotions. He yelled. He yelled on stage when he was trying to rile the crowd up. He yelled something totally relevant to what he was doing. But he yelled. And then, freaking people, the people... A certain number of people heard that enough times, and they were like, "Yeah, you know, you're right. You make a good point." He yelled, "Yeah, I don't know about him. You're right. He he's very emotional. Maybe he's not a good candidate." So the so it was this manufactured opinion. It was this manufactured consensus. When the reality is, that would have barely been a headline. Like if the media hadn't drummed that up. If the media hadn't said, "Hey." Isn't Howard Dean weird, dude? Isn't Howard Dean weird? Because he he shouted at the end of his rally to get people excited. If they didn't do that, people just would have been like, "Oh, that was kind of funny." His voice cracked. His voice cracked. Oh, Howard Dean got really excited. He really wants to be president. People wouldn't have thought about it. It was totally manufactured by pundits in the media. And we've seen where they do this now, but it's more transparent. But that was eye-opening to me. That was over 20 years ago, I think, about 20 years ago. And uh, like I already knew not to trust the media. I was already a rebel. I already knew about that stuff. I was already interested in counterculture and things like that. But that was a, a very distinct moment in my development where I was like, oh, This is what I always heard about. That's what it is. I had heard about the fact that the media manufactures opinions and consensus, but I'd never really seen it play out in real time, especially I was a teenager by then. And I was like, holy shit, this is so transparent and obvious what they're doing. They're manufacturing this. And then when the media manufactures an opinion like that, a bunch of people jump on board and they're like, yeah, yeah. We can see where the media has really struggled in the last decade as the internet has become the dominant way to communicate and it's far more grassroots with social media or we've seen where the media is attacking anybody who has a significant voice that differs from their own. It's why they went after Jerogan. It's why they go after Bill Maher. It's why they go after certain individuals because they have a big platform that is independent from them and is different from them. And then what they're saying is different from them. So you have to find a way to attack those people. You have to smear them. It's a struggle, though. And we can see where, like, the amount of exertion the system has put into maintaining that. And they're still failing. It's only through censorship you know, that they're able to actually limit what people are saying. And there are so many grassroots movements going on. Like the way the internet works is that an entire group of people who are connected and see each other's thoughts, they're in this, it is a simulation of, of the collective subconscious. You know, we're exposed to that through social media. And so entire movements can develop independent of the media independent of anything like the media and it's not that opinions aren't manufactured on a grassroots level because they are but that idea of like the idea of institutions as powerful as these news corporations having that full control is a thing of the past which is why they're fighting so hard to hold on to it which is why they're fighting so hard to force other people out of the conversation and censor them to make them apologize. Because that's where this manufactured opinion comes in again is the reason why people issue these public apologies for no reason in particular is because some sort of manufactured consensus has been created that says what you did was wrong and you should really apologize. And that person starts to feel the weight of the world. Meanwhile, there's nothing on their shoulders at all. There's nothing even on their shoulders, but this manufactured consensus has been created. But now that even happens on the grassroots level, which is crazy. And it knows no bounds. And then even somebody who speaks up for somebody who's in the crosshairs, they enter the crosshairs themselves. I saw that happen with uh, Chris Pratt, who I don't even know anything about. I've never seen him in anything. I know he's from this area. I know he's Christian. But people decided to go through Chris Pratt's social media accounts, and they discovered, lo and behold, that he, he follows Tucker. He follows Tucker. He follows Ben Shapira. He follows Fox News pundits. He follows just conservative Pundits and and conservative organizations. And it's like, well, guess what? Chris Pratt is a conservative Republican. People weren't having that. He went from the doll of the ball, the darling of the ball. Because, like, a few years ago, like, all the young liberal girls I know were all about Chris Pratt. They were like, dude, Chris Pratt, he's so hot and cute and funny. And that's how I know I'm not gay. I mean, I know I'm not gay for many reasons, but like that's how that's one that's I've always used that as the example of like that's how I know I'm not gay, because when women talk about like George Clooney or Brad Pitt, I'm like, yeah, of course. Of course you like him. Those guys are handsome. Like those guys are are at the those guys are like the apex of like what people consider handsome men. And I can recognize the fact that they're handsome too. It doesn't mean I'm sexually attracted to Brad Pitt and George Clooney. But you're in the closet or something if you can't admit those guys are handsome. Like handsome is something. It's like saying like, oh, I can't judge whether that's that horse is, is an attractive horse. Because if I say that that horse is attractive, it means I'm into bestiality. No, you can see a horse and go, that's a handsome freaking horse a wolf you can see a picture of a wolf and be like that's a noble attractive animal doesn't mean you want to fuck a wolf same thing for these like male stars where it's like yeah you, you look at like george clooney or brad pitt and you're just like yeah of course that's an attractive human being if they were a statue you would understand why somebody made that a statue but when women would talk about chris pratt i was just like oh yeah I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Not because I think Chris Pratt is, is an ugly man, but because I can't understand what it is that makes him attractive to women. He looks really normal to me. He looks like a really standard normal guy. And that's how you know you're not gay, is because like women will be fawning over just what looks like a normal guy to you, and you're just like, oh yeah, I don't get that. And, uh... So, so like a lot of young liberal women were obsessed with Chris Pratt. I knew like a group, I was out like a, I ran into a group of women I know some years back at a bar and they were out on like a girl's night out. And so I, they, they invited me to sit with them cause they were my friends. And so I was privy to like some of their girly conversations, young liberal women. And they were talking about like Chris Pratt. They were like, Oh my God, Chris Pratt's my celebrity crush. I love you. Oh my God. Like I think he's in parks and rec. Oh my God, parks. And you know, they were talking about that. And I was just like, Oh yeah. Like I don't, I don't understand this. And this must be what women feel when you talk about a woman, you're like, Oh dude, she's so hot. And they're like, really? Like, cause women can understand why certain women are hot in the same way. Men can understand why certain men are handsome, but it's like, there are some that like, you can only understand if you're attracted to that sex. And so that was, that was like Chris Pratt, where I was like, oh yeah, there's no way for me to comprehend that. Like, yeah, he's famous and he's not ugly, but I don't see where that guy would be exceptional in any way. But they turn on a dime on him. They find out that he has inconvenient political opinions and people were just so angry at him. He's probably always been this way. You know, he's a Christian boy. He's probably always had those views. But because we live in this weird age where you can comb through his follower list or his who he follows and find out that he has different political opinions and people were extremely upset about it. And one of his co-stars, who's also famous, uh, Mark Ruffalo, Mark Ruffalo, defended him and he's like, and, and Mark Ruffalo... From what I understand, is a, a very outspoken lefty guy. He white knights, he says all the right things. But he defended his friend and co-worker. He was like, you know, Chris Pratt's always been a great guy to me. He's always been a really reliable, good friend. But the way people responded, like, I looked at the comments to that out of curiosity, and people were like, Not you. Because that's the weird hive mind thing they say. Not you this isn't it, not you, like as if he's a zombie or something, oh no, you got bit too, not you, this isn't it, Mark, they say that a lot, this isn't it, don't trust anybody who says a new phrase like that, you can't trust them, the surest sign of mind control is when somebody just picks up new slang and phrases and buzzwords and keywords because you don't do that normally. I'm a linguistic conservative. I like to make up stupid new words. I like stupid words and I make them up. But when it comes to the actual way I talk, I don't, just adopt, I don't trust new phrases. I don't trust new words. They're not firmly established yet. So when you see people who are like, this isn't it. It's like, that's a new phrase that got burnt into your brain. I don't trust you. But like they were mad at somebody for defending their friend. Because friendship doesn't actually matter to these people. Friendship is opportunism and convenience. And Mark Ruffalo, Mark Ruffalo Saying, "Hey, Chris Pratt has been an awesome guy to work with, and he's my friend, and I I can always count on him." Being a good friend, being a good citizen doesn't matter. What matters is he doesn't listen to the right people, and he has the wrong opinions. His actual conduct makes no difference. And what's interesting is it makes him unattractive to the women who were fawning over him. Those same women that the the same woman. The same women that I'm talking about who I know who were like, dude, Chris Pratt's my celebrity crush. He's just so hot, dude. He's so funny and hot. And I'm just sitting there like, interesting. Like, it's interesting you chose him. But tons of women felt that way. They turn on a dime and they're like, oh, I'm not attracted to him anymore. And that doesn't happen. The inverse doesn't really happen. You don't really see conservatives change their attraction towards somebody based on their politics. And in fact, they kind of like, they like women, for example, who don't agree with them. Like there's conservative guys who go off about how hot ASC is. And it's kind of demeaning, maybe, I guess you could say, if you want to go there, but it's like, they're still talking about how attractive she is, but in a kind of hate fuck kind of way excuse me but that's kind of the that's kind of the way they talk is it's like oh yeah like freaking hate what she stands for but i i still think she's really hot whereas a lot of a lot of like leftists i know like they will change what they're sexually attracted to on a dime if that person's politics don't line up whereas like i think liberal girls are freaking hot I think really conservative girls are hot. Like those outspoken right-wing chicks. Like I see them being silly and saying silly things. Like that chick who, uh, she's something. She's like a senator or a congresswoman and she's like a millennial. She's young. Like when she wore that dress that said, uh, let's go Brandon. Which is just silly, silly. I was like, "Whoa, she looks fucking hot. Like she's probably unbearable to be around." But I was like, "She's freaking hot," and and she's not even a type I would normally be attracted to. But it's just like something about it that made me go like, "Oh well, she's fucking hot." And like when it was like when Sarah Palin was running for V VP, Sarah Palin was running for VP. Uh, Tons of people I knew who were liberal were like, dude, she's a freaking milf. She kind of has like an old lady, uh, she has like old lady chin fat, which I i don't have a problem with chin fat, but like she, she has, a, she has like her skin hangs weird. That was my only problem with Sarah Palin is the skin on her, on her like chin kind of hangs weird. But like tons of people who hated her were like, man, she's freaking hot. And maybe this is just like a man woman difference, like a man, and it's not just like a g- guys will fuck anything, dude. Guys will fuck, guys will fuck anything. It's not even that. It's just men. I don't think are as motivated by whether or not somebody agrees with them socially or politically when determining if they're attracted to them. Whereas with women, it plays a big role in a lot with a lot of women. And I do think there is kind of a conservative-liberal divide there. And most of the guys I know who lean even a little bit conservative or even further have often dated liberal women. Like, it doesn't seem to be a problem. It's only a problem if if it becomes a problem. On principle, it's not a problem. It's sort of like a his-and-hers thing. Like, I've always dated women who are more liberal than me, most of them very far to the left. But it's never bothered me. It's just been like, oh— Let's agree to disagree. Hopefully, I don't have any beliefs that are so fundamentally abhorrent that we can't coexist. Hopefully, you don't have the same thing going on. But beyond that, we don't really need to address this because, hey, we can get along without that. But it's interesting that like, I don't see a woman and when I find out that she has different beliefs from me, think, oh, my dick just went limp. Excuse me, but... You know, that doesn't happen for me. It doesn't matter what they believe. It could be any end of the spectrum. It just doesn't happen. But I do notice that, like, finding out Chris Pratt's conservative turned people off from him. So, uh, but, you know, but deep down, the thing is, a lot of that is signaling. Like, deep down, I don't think people are as impacted by that. And people are often attracted to the very thing they claim to hate. Like my joke during summer 2020 was that somebody needs to make a porn that's like a uh, a patriot front guy like an alt right patriot front guy screwing an antifa liberal girl with dyed hair. Like how have I not seen that? I don't look at a lot of porn, but like how have I not heard of that porn? Like it must exist cuz people say there's a porn of everything. But how come there's not a ton of that? Cuz like you know that there's there's like there's far right dudes who will tell you like, "Oh, I just want like a traditional Christian girl who wants to raise my family and we're going to live on a farm and uh, post about our farm on social media or cuz we're we're living like our ancestors did." You know, but secretly they're thinking like, "Man, that girl with the short green hair." Man, and in a vice versa, where it's like there's like some hardcore antifa girl who's like, I'm non-binary, I'm polyamorous, you know, I don't even consider myself a woman. And deep down she's like, Oh, that guy with the uh, the Patriot front jacket and the Hit- and the Hitler youth haircut, dude, he's so hot. Like you know that it it's the the forbidden. So I bet people are actually attracted, but they just can't be honest about it. It'd be an interesting baby, like some real Romeo and Juliet shit. But I mean, I've even experienced a little bit of that myself. Like I was dating a girl who did have dyed hair. She had dyed hair. She had stick and poke tattoos. She was as, as far left as you can get. I don't think she deeply cared, but it's like she was in a social group and an environment where she had to. But I met some of her friends, like her friends who didn't live around here, who were very politically engaged. And I just showed up in like a, just like a button up shirt and shorts and like a ball cap. But none of them looked that way. Like none of her friends looked like me. Like even though I just looked like a generic normal guy, none of her friends looked like that or were like me in that way. I could tell they didn't trust me. Maybe it was in my own head. But I could tell they were kind of nervous around me. Like, she, like they, were, they were wondering like, is she dating a member of the enemy tribe? Is, is, uh, is she dating a Montague or whatever the family is, Montague and Capulet? Is she dating a Montague? She's a Capulet. You know, that, that sort of mentality is in people. And I could just psychically feel that I was being evaluated. It wasn't mean. I could just tell there was a nervousness where it was like, oh, she's dating a jock, you know, that that was probably, like, on some level, they're like, she's dating, like, an all-American boy, you know, what the fuck is going on, I kind of liked that dynamic, because the truth was, and I'm going on my own, I'm, I'm getting high on my own supply by saying this, but it's like, I enjoyed that, like, When I'm around a bunch of superficially weird people, like people who decorate themselves, that's cool. Decorate yourself. But it's like I kind of get off on the fact that like I'm I'm not necessarily superficially weird, but I know how fucking weird I am. I know that I'm probably the weirdest fucking person standing here. But, you know, you don't know what I'm all about. And, you know... Like, whereas with other people, like I'm saying, like you can you can look at their haircut, you can look at their their hair color, you can look at where their piercings are, and you can say, okay, I probably know what that person thinks about everything. So not being that is an asset, but people will look at you and be like, I can't categorize this person, this person doesn't belong. But uh, I don't know. I bet there's a lot of Far left girls who fantasize about far right dudes. I bet there's a lot of far right dudes. I mean, I know there's a lot of far right dudes who fantasize about liberal girls because they talk about. It. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's that's the that's what I'm talking about yet again. Whereas like like those same dudes will be like, dude, ASC ASC is fucking hot, dude. I can't stand her, but AOC is fucking hot. Like, oh, that girl with the green hair is fucking hot, dude. Uh, Whereas like the opposite, they just won't admit it. It's like, oh, that far right guy with the Hitler youth haircut is really hot. But I just, I can't admit it. But I do think like women in particular, it's about more than just the physicality. Yeah, women are attracted to attractive guys. But I think part of their motivation is like making sure this guy fits the social consensus they live under. Like, oh, this guy, he won't be accepted among my tribe. So I have to rethink this. Whereas like, a guy doesn't give a shit if a girl fits into his tribe. And a lot of guys, not just the psycho-controlling guys, but there's a lot of guys, they don't really mind if a, if a woman they're dating fits in with their friends. Like, it's nice if she gets along with them and doesn't hate them. But they don't really mind if she doesn't gel with them or fit in with them. And they don't really mind if she's part of a tribe of her own. Like how the tribe feels about the girl, as long as she doesn't have a horrible reputation for for doing, you know, bad things... <laughs> Uh, you know, as long as she doesn't have a reputation or something like they don't really care what the tribe thinks of her. They don't care if she's popular with the tribe, whereas women are very attracted, not just to the man, but to what other people think of the man. It's why, like, I've I've talked about it on here where like a female friend of mine, who's very independent, very, a very smart, independent woman who I have nothing but respect for disclaimer, but, uh, it's true. Where like I, at a bar over drinks, I, I heard her saying to another female friend, like where she was, she went through this guy, she had dated uh, social media and saw that like he didn't get much engagement or he, he didn't have very many followers. And that made her, she didn't like that. Like she was suspicious when she saw that this attractive guy was not popular on social media. Like, that, that to her, like, signaled there's something wrong with him. Like, oh, he doesn't have the respect of the tribe. And I think, I don't think this is a, necessarily a horrible thing. Because I think women have needed to use those, uh, I think women have needed to measure men using that. Like, because there's safety to that. There's infrastructure to that. So it's like, oh, if I date this guy or I marry this guy, I'm marrying into a safe infrastructure where this guy is respected by his peers, where there is a tribe supporting this guy. I'm not saying it it all works this way, but I think this is a part of it. And so when a woman sees that this guy is not necessarily getting the respect of his peers, they don't think, oh, I found a rare gem. Nobody's found this rare gem before. They think, "Oh, there must be something defective." Social consensus says there must be something wrong with this guy. Whereas, I think a guy like and I, I found this with my fellow men, and this shows how um, this shows how blind men can be. But men will find a girl who has a lot going for her but yet doesn't seem to have the support of the tribe and they think oh i found a rare gem i found an untainted gem and it's not always true cuz in some cases men should should listen to that it's like everybody should like listen to that like like when a woman sees that a man doesn't have significant social standing or doesn't have the right opinions they should be like hmm i'm going to i'm going to think about this but I'm going to give him a chance until he gives me a reason not to, if I like him. Men should kind of do the opposite and say like, oh, it's kind of cool that she doesn't have friends. Because <laughs> no, seriously, like it's not just controlling guys who are feel threatened by a woman with a social life because like sick controlling men hate when a woman has a social life. It's what I said. Like, like a female friend of mine was dating a guy who was trying to control her life and he was really hyper jealous of the fact that she had male friends. And he was hyper jealous of like her dating history. And I told her, well, it's not going to end there. He's not just going to be jealous and upset that you have male friends and that you've dated other people in your life. If you have female friends, he's going to feel threatened every time you talk about them or hang out with them. Because he, because guys like that feel that... Anybody, especially other women sometimes, are going to pull her away from him. And so I was like, you know, he's not just going to be jealous of other men. He's going to be jealous of your friendships with other women. He's going to be jealous of your family because that's how those guys operate. They're really sick. But it's not just guys like that. I think there's a lot of guys, and you know, this describes my friends and maybe even me a little bit, where it's like if you find out a girl doesn't really have a strong social life, you're like, cool, I don't have to worry about that. Like for me, when I, whenever I meet a girl, when I've met a girl who it's like she doesn't have like a, a strong tribe, I don't think, oh, she must be a loser or defective or have the wrong opinions. I think like, cool, I don't need to worry about social consensus. I don't need to worry about what her friends think of me. of me. I don't need to worry about her friends getting in her ear about me. So that's how I think about it. I'm like, oh, it's, it's kind of a bonus if she doesn't have some like super tight friend group because in my experience, that sucks. That means the girl's like constantly weighing those two things and if they're not totally compatible, they pull her apart because the social consensus does matter to her. Just an interesting thing, but anyway, I've been going on for almost three hours. Holy shit. This started as a walk. I'm going to go ahead and end it. I've been talking about politics for the last two hours. I was talking about dreams and synchronicity, and all it took was one little uh, one little opening. But I did want to talk about that stuff in Portland, like because I'm interested in that stuff. It reminds me that I'm not crazy. Like, my friend, who's, who's a liberal woman in her late 30s, has always was raised in an extremely liberal household, believes all of the things that the 1969 hippies believed, has been living that out throughout her life, but now moved to Portland and right away is confronted with a random girl being like, I made this dress. Oh and we also have BLM dresses for sale and, and rainbow trans flag dresses for sale. And their roommate, who's like a 40-something-year-old nerd, is like, oh, so you're a moderate. And he's making jokes about Republican having a silent K. It's just interesting to have a a friend going through that. And as someone who doesn't bring up politics with that friend very often, it's interesting to see her having to come to terms with it because I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what you have to deal with. This is what you have to deal with now in our culture is that People are constantly volunteering their politics. They're forcing their icons upon you. And that's a test. One, they can't comprehend that any good person wouldn't share the same beliefs and want the same icon iconography on their body. But it's also a test because it's a way of saying like, oh, if you're cool with this, you're cool. It's like that friend of mine I mentioned on here, a woman, different friend who when the blm protests were starting she messaged me out of the blue and was like hey we're going to this candlelight protest where we're going to walk through residential neighborhoods peacefully and do you want to go and i knew it was a test this is a good a good woman like she's not she's not a bad person but she knew that i she knew that i hadn't declared my allegiance And I knew that she was testing that. I knew that she was testing me to see what I would say. And I said, like, I support you doing that, but I can't do it. And I didn't mean that I support you walking through residential neighborhoods. I didn't mean I support BLM. What I meant is I support you as my friend and as a smart person doing something you believe in. But she was testing me. And she was seeing what I would say. Because if I said, sure, I'll be there in five minutes, then, oh, I declared my allegiance. But if I said, I'm not into that. No, thanks. Hell no. She'd be like, oh, he declared his allegiance. So I was very tactful. I was like, I'm going to not do it. I'm going to make it clear it's not something I'm going to do. But I'm going to just say, I'm going to be nice about it. And But I knew it was a test. I could sense that it was a test. And another friend who's, who's just gone, a guy I used to hang out with who's just gone, you know, with all this stuff, he's just been swept up and taken as far, so far downstream, I can't even see him. But when the VAC was ramping up, when the big VAC debate was ramping up, he messaged me and he said, have you gotten vac And And we don't, we don't talk much anymore. It was out of the blue. And he was like, have you gotten vac and I had. At that point, I got, I had I'd gotten the, the two, sh- the schutz. They put the schutz in my arm. And uh, I said, yeah. And he goes, phew. He, he sent a text that said, phew. And I guess you could, I mean, like, if you look at that innocently, you could say, okay, maybe he wants to hang out but he's uncomfortable hanging out with somebody who's unvacked. And so he wanted to know if I'm back, but he didn't follow that up with like, maybe he said something about getting together, but it was like, it was very clear to me. And I don't think this is paranoid thinking, but it was very clear to me because he and I had had an argument about free speech and Trumpsfeld and, and that sort of thing. So he knows that I'm not going along with the program. He, he, he even said some things that were actually offensive to me personally, but I didn't, I chose not to take them that way, but they were offensive. He's the one who like, when I was talking about free speech, he, he was, he mentioned QAnon and he, and he was like, well, you know, I haven't seen you for a while and we're hearing about a lot of people, you know, joining this QAnon thing. And I was like, are you asking me if I'm, I'm QAnon one, it shouldn't fucking matter if I was, but I'm not. But uh, so, you know, he and I had, had already had like a little bit of a rough interaction surrounding that. So the fact that he messaged me out of the blue after I hadn't heard from him for a while and he was like, have you gotten vac It's clear he was testing me. He was seeing if I was anti-VAC. And because I said, yeah, it's my personal medical business. But since you since you asked, yeah, I did get it. You don't know that because I don't I didn't post a photo of myself getting it with a with a button or a sticker that said I I got vac. I didn't broadcast it. Like probably most of the people you know did. A lot of them did. But because I didn't broadcast it, you don't know where I stand and like you were he was probably relieved to find out that I wasn't anti vac, but meanwhile I'm like, Oh, it was another test. And people test you in that way. Like the girl with the dresses, (laughs) like her bringing that up out of the blue. Oh, we also sell BLM dresses. Imagine that. Imagine like my friend who's a white woman. I'm just trying to imagine her going around in a BLM dress, but that's a test too. It's like you see how someone reacts to that and you find out who your friends and enemies are. If someone says, oh dude, that's so fucking amazing. Dude, that's fucking cool. Give me I'll take ten of them. I'm gonna wear a BLM dress every day. I heard someone talking about how like one answer to this, one possible solution, is to just like throw this in people's faces to like take on these causes, but take them to such an extreme degree that you become a caricature of them. Because there is an element to this of is it uh I think it's Daffy Duck and Elmer Fudd. There's an old Looney Tunes cartoon where there's like a sign on a tree that says duck season. So Elmer Fudd is hunting for ducks. And so Daffy Duck puts a sign over it that says rabbit season. And then Elmer Fudd replaces it with duck season. And they go back and forth doing that. And Daffy Duck's like rabbit season, duck season, rabbit season, no duck season. And then, it's the classic reversal where Daffy Duck then changes it to, to duck season and then Elmer Fudd's like rabbit season. So like duck season, rabbit season, duck season, rabbit season, rabbit season, duck season. It's like what you do with little kids. It's, it's like classic psychological manipulation where like if, if you're telling a little kid to do something and the kid says no and you go yes, the kid says no, you say yes. The kid says no again, and then you say no, then the little kid says yes, because you're playing on oppositional defiance and oppositional defiance is what motivates a lot of this. Like a lot of what the left has been pushing comes from a place of oppositional defiance. These ideas germinated at a time when some of these viewpoints were considered very out there, like saying gender doesn't exist. Gender can be fluid. You can fluctuate between a man and a woman saying defund the police, these were pr- these were extreme ideas before a few years ago. They've become relatively mainstream now, in some cases very mainstream, but the, the oppositional defiance hasn't quite caught up with it. Like people haven't quite caught up to the fact that their defiant beliefs are now well accepted and culturally normal, but at some point that's going to kick in. At what point, I don't know though. Because I would have think that that would have kicked in already. Like when people saw Raytheon change their logo to a rainbow flag for the month of June a few years ago, I would have thought they said, hey, maybe something's going on here. Maybe I need to reevaluate this. But no, they haven't quite caught up with that. Because the cult is so strong. That's a thing. The cult thinking is so incredibly strong That they haven't reached a point of self-awareness. It hasn't reached a point of consciousness where it can even think about itself. Right now, it's just, it's like a, an animal with no self-awareness, just powering ahead. It hasn't stopped to reflect. There's been zero reflection on it. But at some point, there will have to be reflection. And you do wonder sometimes if, if, for example, like conservatives took on liberal issues and said, we believe that now. And we're going to hammer it in your face. We're going to be the biggest proponents of gender theory you ever met. You almost wonder if that would push things the other way. The difference, the problem is though, you don't want to play the same game as these people. You don't want to use their tools. And the other side of that is if, is if you did try to mock these beliefs by taking them on, they might overtake you. And next thing you know, you believe them. We know that irony can turn to reality really quickly. That's the scary part about it. You can start joking about something, and if you make that joke enough, you become that. What I always say about that, it's like I've always said. It is like I've always said, though, where like some friends of mine, you know, me and some friends in high school, when we started smoking a lot of pot, we used to think the term tight was stupid. You know, my friends and I, we were linguistic conservatives. And when a new slang term emerged, we weren't quick to adopt it. What's wrong with cool? What's wrong with calling things cool? Why would I call things tight? Tight was what like the wiggers and jocks said. Dude, that's tight. Stoners. Oh, dude, dude, that's tight. We thought saying tight was stupid. But then we got stoned one day and we we called things tight and laughed. We were like, dude, it's so fucking funny. And then we did it again. And then I, I remember there was a moment practically where my buddy Steve and I were stoned and we were looking at something and one of us just goes, that's tight. And then everyone one was like, you know, that actually is tight. Like we understood the word tight. And then for a little while that joke was real. We didn't, we didn't stick with it, but for a little while, that joke became real, where next thing you knew, we were looking at things and genuinely, sincerely saying, that's tight. That's tight. So jokes become reality. And if you want to destroy something by mocking it, make sure that by mocking it, you don't become that thing. Make sure you don't forget what you are. But I do think that's going to happen. You know, I commented on here about how there was like an an anti-woke film festival in New York put on by what seemed to be liberals. Because that was like I was saying, like what I used to like about liberals is they understood context and they could joke about things and have fun with things. And at some point, the liberals became very serious and humorless. But somebody was putting on this anti-woke film festival and I saw footage from it. I saw like somebody had taken video from the festival and it was put on by a black guy. So of course it was safe. But I I looked at the footage and I was like, oh, these are all just like classic New York hipsters. This is a very liberal crowd, but they're obviously sick of the cultural repression. They're obviously sick of censorship. And so they're going to an anti-woke film festival, which I think is silly and stupid. Because I I hate anti-woke. I hate anti-woke stuff almost as much as I hate woke stuff. I don't like that shtick one way or another. I don't like either side of that game. I like things that are funny. I like things that are interesting. I don't like things that are just trying to push against the dominant cultural forces. So when I saw this anti-woke film festival, I was like, it's fine. They're doing that. I'm glad somebody's, I guess, doing that. But I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. (laughs) Not that I would go to that, but like, I was just like, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't trust this because these look to be the same people who got us in this mess. And at some point they're going to want out. At some point, a significant number of people are going to be like, yeah, this was fucking crazy. I want out. I want to laugh again. I want to feel comfortable again. And I hope that day comes. I hope the day comes when just normal fucking hipster liberals are just like yeah we want to joke about uncomfortable shit and appreciate art and the things that we liked the things that we liked like we want to like stuff again at some point they're going to do that and that'll be a good thing but i also don't trust it and right now like anything that's framed as anti-woke to me is just as suspicious as woke it all it all screams opportunism And that's why you have to respect people like Jerogan. because he's not trying to be anti-woke. He's just a guy saying things. And that's what we're missing. Not that he's the be all end all, but I do have a lot of respect for him and what he's been able to do and the, the delicate balance he's maintained. And I think one of the reasons why he's been able to maintain the respect of so many people, despite, you know, he gives disclaimers. He did make a silly apology video but for the most part, he just kind of says things off the top of his head, and he doesn't walk them back. He just kind of goes, "I'm just a guy talking," and that's what we've been missing. You don't need to be anti woke. Because speaking of Ben Shapiro earlier, Ben Shapiro, he's he started this media em- empire, this media empire, and uh, he's now going to be producing like anti woke feature films and TV shows. There's that guy, Tim Poole, you know, who, yeah, I don't really have an opinion about one way or the other, but Tim Poole, I heard is like, he's going to be making like an anti-woke sitcom and it's like, come on guys, come on. You don't need to do that. You don't need to like stage some kind of counter protest. Just do what you do naturally. Cause what's missing from all this is honesty and nature. What's missing is just acting naturally. That's what people want. They don't want you to like make movies and TV shows that are anti-woke as some sort of counter-protest. They just want to be able to act naturally. They just want to be able to have normal conversations. They just want to go through life without having to declare their political allegiance, without being tested by their friends, without having a random girl try to sell you her BLM dresses at the gas station. That's all people actually want. They don't feel that strongly about it beyond that. They just want to be able to act naturally. They want to be able to be honest. And they don't want to be honest everywhere and anywhere. That's the weird thing about the free speech discussion is people have this idea that certain people want to be able to say whatever they want wherever they want. That's not what people want. The problem is people don't even feel comfortable doing that in their own homes. They don't even feel like doing that around people they trust. Because there is very low trust going on. What people want is they want to feel comfortable around their friends and family. And guess what people don't feel? They don't feel comfortable around their friends and family in many cases. They have to worry about their new roommate's political beliefs. They have to worry about some sort of political allegiance test anywhere and everywhere and uh we're reaching three hours here i gotta let's get yeah we're we just hit three hours so people want to act naturally and that's not a god-given right you know so much in our lives requires us to lie and a lot of it's innocent just going to your job is lying being in customer service being nice to your boss when you hate him You know, we all play roles. Just part of surviving in our world doesn't allow us to act naturally all the time. It's not a God-given right. But the problem is, is that there's no escape from this anywhere. We know that going to work or school requires us to act a certain way. We know that we have to say things we don't believe and pretend to be something we aren't in various situations in life. The problem is the times and places where we can act naturally just don't even exist. You can't do it online. You can't do it among your friends, depending on who your friends are, depending on who your family is. So you're basically alone. You're basically alone. I mean, you have confidants, just like I was talking about having spiritual confidants. You have people that you can talk off the cuff with. And the friend of mine who... Told me like she's not comfortable with uh, some of this gender stuff. Some of this gender stuff. You know, afterwards she was like, thank you. Like you could tell this is something that she had been wanting to get off her chest for a while. And I was like, oh, this is just normal. This is a normal day for me. Like to her, it was like getting something off her chest. chest. It was like confession. And... It was just like, you don't have to thank me. This is what people do. People have conversations about this stuff. It wasn't a hateful conversation. It was like what she was talking about was just the trend. You know, because when people talk about the trans thing, they give a lot of disclaimers and they're like, I don't, I know that some people are born in a different body and it's a very small percentage of the people. And if that's how they feel inside, they should be allowed to do whatever they want, which I agree with. I don't believe in controlling anybody else's life or their mind, but it's like people feel the need to give a disclaimer. Like just to talk about the the degree that this social psychosis is infecting young people requires you to give a disclaimer about how you don't want to kill people who do that. You know, it's like, oh yeah, you know, I have some concerns about the fact that they're giving children puberty blockers and encouraging them to dissociate from their identity, but I don't want them to be killed. Like you don't have to say that if you're a decent person, you know, (laughs) like there's a whole spectrum of beliefs between, hey, some of this, this trend that's been going on, this ideology that's convinced people to dissociate from who they are in a time of just mass dissociation. Anyway, We're already dissociated just by living so much of our lives online and through devices. We don't live very material lives anymore, at least not in the physical sense. Our materialism has been projected into this digital world where we play video games and we have avatars. We're already dissociated from our identity, enough as it is, and then children are being encouraged to do so to an even greater degree, and we see they're completely dissociated. And they're dissociating from just some of the basic biological realities that we can count on. And turning them into, it's just like an endlessly unfolding series of, absurd, of absurdities about what it is to be a human being. You can recognize that <laughs> without thinking there's no such thing as people who feel like they're in the wrong body And the people who do feel that way should be gassed. Like there's a whole, there's a whole spectrum of beliefs. But the idea is that if you believe even a little bit of that, even if you're at the bottom of the spectrum where you're just like, Hey, this is a little weird. Isn't it a little weird how 40% of Zomers are LGBT, 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 you know, isn't it a little weird? People think that simply saying that is like some kind of gateway to being like, time to kill him. And it, it speaks volumes when somebody I know, who's who I've known for 10 years, who's a very close friend of mine, who's like family to me, thanks me for being willing to talk about that because it's so off limits that even even friends feel like they're confessing or revealing something like they're vulnerable but it's like hey this is a this would be a normal conversation in any other time and that's kind of what's missing from it too is the pressure it's not just believe what I believe it's believe it now whereas like if I truly wanted somebody to believe something it'd be nice if they picked up on it right away Like, totally unrelated subject. This happens with mafia research. You know, this group of guys and I have developed this kind of peer group where we're all very serious researchers and we care a lot about accuracy. But it being a secret society, there's a lot of different interpretations of the same information. There's a couple guys I'm friends with and we're on the same page. Like, we can share information about mafia history and we know exactly kind of how it fits. But there's a couple people who I'm friends with but they're going to interpret that information differently. And they might actually come around to my way of thinking, but I can't force it on them. And I would rather they come to it on their own anyway. They're going to bring more if they come to it on their own. If I just bully them into thinking this, and and, and I'm using that example because it's so silly. I mean, I talked to this guy, Frank Fiordolino, a couple times in the last two weeks. We had a phone call with him. He was a, an associate of the Bonanno family, and his, his uncles were made members in Sicily and the US. Frank never got made. He killed somebody. He shot a guy in the throat and then his friend slit the guy's throat. They killed a drug dealer and robbed him. What's funny is I don't think about that when I talk to these guys. Like I don't think about how this guy I'm talking to and having a good conversation with killed a man. But he did and he joined the witness protection program. He cooperated. But uh, why am I talking about him? uh interesting story interesting life story frank fiordolino but uh why am i talking about him uh, i had a reason i guess i'm just like pointing out oh, oh I, because the first phone call i had with frank the first thing he said is like basically why do you care about mafia history like he lived it he was born into it he was born into a clan of people where the men simply joined the mafia It was like being, it's like a fish being born in water. It doesn't think about the fact that it's swimming in water its entire life. It's like air. That's what this guy's life was like. He was born into a subculture, the mafia, where that's what the men did. And so since he left the mafia, even though he's still interested in it because it was his life, when he talks to guys like us who have no experience with the mafia whatsoever, his question was like, why would you even be interested in this? And I said to him, I was like, you know, it's not that it's a secret society. It's not that much different from like being into military history. But to a guy who lived it, he's just, he's got a bunch of misgivings about the mafia. He left the mafia. So he was just like, why would you even be interested in this? And so I'm using that as an example because there's a group of guys I'm friends with and we really care about getting that stuff right. Like we'll sit there and have debates over like, oh, well, this guy said that so-and-so was the boss of that family in this year, but this guy said this other guy was the boss and we'll debate that. But I recognize the absurdity of it, that it doesn't really matter. And even though I'd like people to see things from my point of view, at the end of the day, I'm just like, yeah, whatever, man. Like if you come around to my way of thinking, it's going to be better if you put it together on your own anyway. Forcing you to agree with me, that's a weak link. If I'm trying to form a chain, forcing you is a weak, brittle link, and it's going to break. And that's what always gets me about this liberal movement, this leftist movement, is it's saying, don't just believe what I believe, believe it now. And if you don't believe it now, you're an enemy right now. And you're forcing weak links to join you. And I think those are going to be fickle followers, because if I was trying to build up a strong base, if I was political, if I was in war, I would want to recruit people who are true believers and they came to those beliefs through their own process, even if I gave them, even if I led them in, I would want them to come to that belief themselves. It's true for just data and information something totally silly like mafia history. If somebody's going to agree with something with a theory of mine, I want them to come to it. I want them to believe it because they believe it and they put those pieces together. They did the work in their brain themselves. Same thing for politics. I want you to do the work yourself and believe what I believe for the same reasons. Not because I told you to. Not because I coerced you. Not because I shamed you. But what you see, and this is, this is why I think there will be a backlash. This is why I think eventually the oppositional defiance will catch up and young people will start to say, hey, you know, do I really want to just be another person pushing this weird, somehow mainstream ideology? Or do I want to actually think about this? So there's a lot of weak links involved in this. And the reality is, if things were to change, if things were to shift, if things were to go back the other way, a bunch of those weak links would break, and they would go with the other side. Like, if we do reach that point, if there's somehow a breaking point, and a bunch of these people who have been caught up in this craze were like, hey, that was a a wild way of thinking. Of course there's biological men and women. Of course there's this, of course that. If they came to that, if they if they kind of came back to reality, as I would put it, I wouldn't completely trust them because I'd be like, I know what you're capable of thinking. I know what you're capable of being caught up in. But if they, if they figured it out on their own, I would be like, well, good. You put it together. You put the pieces together. And I think that might come. You know, I think that might happen. And when that does happen, those people aren't going to go, oh, hey, wasn't it? Wasn't it freaking crazy that I believed all that wild nonsense? Wasn't it crazy that I caught up with that lotus flower of absurdity layer where I just, I accepted every single layer as each new layer got peeled back, as each absurdity got more and more crazy? I believe wasn't that wild that I believed in all that. They're not going to, they're not going to have that. Even if they know that inside, they're not going to acknowledge that. They're just gonna take on the new belief, which might be the old belief, the the original belief. They might just take that on and be like, oh, this is just what I've always thought. Because that's what they're doing now. What they're doing now is saying, oh, hey, it's it's like the example I always use. It's like the example I always use. It's like the example I always use of the BBC guy or whatever he was, the British host, old man, an old Britishman, interviewing. This traditional feminist who doesn't believe trans people should use women's restrooms. And, you know, he asked her her beliefs and she was like, well, I believe that there are biological men and women and women need their own spaces. And the old man was like, I find that staggering. And it's like, no, you don't. You don't find that staggering. You're like a 70 year old man in England. You haven't you haven't been going around your whole life thinking that there's no truth true men or true women and everybody should use each other's restrooms even if that makes sense to you now and that is even if that is the right thing you didn't believe that 2 years ago you didn't believe that 5 years ago how could you possibly find it quote unquote staggering which is very british of him I find I just find that staggering I find it staggering you know You're not staggered by that. You're staggered by that because you forgot what you even used to think. You forgot who you even used to be. You're so caught up in the now that you don't even remember that you thought the same way she did yesterday. But today you're acting like her beliefs are outrageous. And even if you think that she needs to... Even if you sincerely believe that you're right now and she's wrong... Being shocked by her beliefs and, or, and like shaming her. Do you think that that's going to get you what you want? What you want is for her to figure it out on her own. Maybe with a prompt or two. But you want her to come to the same conclusions you did. And if your evidence is so convincing, that shouldn't be that hard to do. But... That's the thing—is you're always going to have people who are like, "That's staggering! I can't believe you don't believe that." I've always believed we should defund the police. They're kind of everybody's kind of like Trumpsfeld in that way, just like Trumpsfeld says. You know, Jim Jim's always been—he's uh, always been willing to serve our country. That's what I've always liked about Jim—is is Jim's always been willing to serve our country. You know, Trumpsfeld saying like that's what I've always thought. That's what I've always said. And when Trump says that, you're like, I don't know if he has said that before. I don't know if he has thought that before. Trumpsfeld speaks as if everything he's saying is something that he's always said, and he literally tells you that. And you don't know if that's true. But that's what people do with their political beliefs. That's what the left is doing. While they don't talk like Trumpsfeld, they act like it in the sense that they're like... Well, it's like I've always said, we got to defund the police. Well oh, it's like I, you know, I walked in here and I saw these police and I thought, uh, we've really got to do something. we got to defund these guys. These guys, we're giving too much money to these guys. Like I've always said, we got to defund them. You know, that's kind of what the left is like to me. They're like, it's like I've always said. It's like I've been saying. It's like, no, you haven't been saying that. The difference with Trump's fault is when he says it, it's about some sort of minor absurd thing. When he says it, it's just like, it's like I've always said, uh, this room is full of people. You know, he says shit like that, whereas the left, it's like, well, it's like I've always said, black should be capitalized, white should be lowercase. Women should be called birthing people. It's like, that's not what you've always said. That's not what you've always believed. But you have to be ready for those people to change with the times like you have to be ready for those same people to suddenly believe the things you believe again and for them to act like they, there was never anything different. It's like in the movie mall rats. <laughs> it's rare to get a Kevin Smith reference on here. Uh, it's like in the movie mall rats when Jason Lee is talking about like some plane that was experiencing turbulence and going to crash and how everybody just whipped out their dicks and started jerking off. Because they were like, we're going to die. We might as well like jack off one last time. And uh, the plane rights itself and doesn't crash. And, and he says, like, everybody just puts their dicks away and acts like it never happened. That's what it's like to me. Like, There's a lot of people out there who basically whip their dicks out and are masturbating right now. And then when they put it away, they act like it never happened. And I think that might be what we see. If this ship ever gets righted. If we can ever turn even just a different direction, I have no hope of going back. But if we can even turn in a different direction, I'm totally ready for all of these people who were gung-ho for that direction that we were going in, the wrong direction in my opinion, I'm totally ready for them to act like they were never going in that direction. And that's okay. Because I believe in forgiving people. I believe in... I, here's the thing. Like, I have no problem with forgiveness, I just don't forget things like I'm never going to forget who was out of their minds two years ago when the BLM craze took over. I'm never going to forget the individual people who were out of their minds and I could see it in their eyes. I've already, I, I, I don't even need to forgive them. I'm not even mad at them, so I don't even need to forgive them. But if I did need to forgive them, I would. What I won't do is I won't forget it. I just can't. But that said, you should be... If people come around, if people wake up, don't be mad at them. Don't shame them. Be happy they came around. But just know that the way people think, the way the human brain works, the way large groups of people's minds work, is that... They can go from one thing to the next and back again and act like whatever it is they're thinking right now is the thing they've always thought. Whether they truly believe that, I don't know. I don't even know if they know, but I know how they conduct themselves. So I'll be interested in seeing that. You know, I'll be interested in seeing how things change, because they have to. This climate, it's, it's just... its unacceptable it's intolerable and it's intolerant and these are things everybody says anybody who's critical of these things can't shut up about them it's nice when you can I hate to be that person by talking about these things I feel like I'm that girl who makes dresses being like well I also got a I got a a free speech dress because that's exactly what you don't want like talking about Ben Shapiro and and people like that making their own anti-woke movies and TV shows That might as well be, oh, hey, we're making dresses too. See, that girl over there, she's making BLM and rainbow flag dresses. We're making free speech dresses. It's like it's all freaking dorky. Playing that game at all is freaking dorky. And you're not going to create good things. You're not going to come up with good original ideas if you're playing that game in any way whatsoever. But it's difficult. I don't blame those people for trying to like push against the the waves. I don't mind them for trying to go against the grain and be like, we're going to do stuff because Hollywood is controlled by people who disagree with us. We're going to create our own thing that's the opposite. The problem is, though, by being the opposite, you're just another team in the same game. And I just, I don't believe that it's not what I want to do. I think we need to... I don't think that that's a, um, an environment where we think creatively. I don't think that's an environment where we come up with new and original ideas. And even if those new and original ideas are a a, a repackaged version of old ideas, I don't even think we're in an environment where we can do that. But uh, it is fun. I do have to admit, I think it is fun to observe this. If you don't find this psychologically and sociologically interesting, I'm sorry, but I, th- I find it endlessly fascinating, which is one of the reasons why I like to talk about it. It's not coming from anger as much as it is genuine fascination. Because to me, it's almost like watching maggots eat a wolf corpse or something, which I don't watch. You think I watch that? It's like I've always said. i doing bad Trumpsfeld impressions now. Like I've always said. Uh, that's what it's like for me, though. It's, it's like watching an animal corpse be devoured by worms or something, where you're just like, I don't like this. It grosses me out. It kind of disturbs me. But there's something about it truly fascinating. We're watching a process unfold. And if nothing else, that's what we can say about this time we live in, which is true for any time, but hey, we're, we're here right now, and all we can do is observe the processes that are playing out right now. Even though there's a process always playing out, I'm watching the one playing out right now. I'm watching those worms dig into the corpse, and I'm saying, wow, something is happening, <laughs> and I can't, I can't help but find it interesting. Say